they recalled. Nevertheless, we said the government had substantial political assets remaining and had begun showing the flexibility to mount a strategy that could enable it to survive for years to come. He recommended that Washington ought to plan as if Castro would be around for another ten years. Boy, that wasn't welcome, Taylor recalled. To help the process of regime transition along, Washington intensified its demands that Moscow cut economic and military aid to Havana. If it turns out that they are forced to swim without the Soviet life preserver, there is little doubt but that they will drown, explained a U.S. official. It would only be a question of time. In Moscow, to meet with Shevardnadze in February 1990, Baker explicitly linked the prospect of economic aid from the United States to an end to Soviet aid for Cuba. Bush made the same argument at the June 1990 summit at Camp David. We have no right to dictate to Fidel Castro how he should manage the affairs of his country, Gorbachev replied. Nevertheless, he tried to downplay Soviet assistance, assuring Bush that Soviet trade subsidies, exchanging Soviet oil at below market prices for Cuban sugar at above market prices, would end in the coming year. Gorbachev again urged Bush to talk directly to the Cubans. The moment you treated the Cubans as equal partners, they adopted a balanced and reasonable attitude. Bush replied that Washington would consider normalization only in the event of radical internal changes in Cuba. The failed coup against Gorbachev in August 1991 strengthened Washington's hand immensely. Many of Havana's best friends in the Kremlin, known collectively as the Cuba Lobby, numbered among the plotters. Their disgrace left Cuba with few advocates. Gorbachev, who had resisted Washington's demand that Moscow cut aid to Cuba, remained titular head of the Soviet state, but real power flowed to Boris Yeltsin, president of the Russian Republic. Yeltsin had no particular love for the Cubans. In September, James Baker made his first post-coup trip to Moscow to meet with both Yeltsin and Gorbachev. Loans from the United States would be easier to get, Baker reiterated, if the Soviet Union stopped subsidizing communism in places like Cuba, especially with military aid. Yeltsin promised that military aid to Cuba would end by January 1, 1992, and all Soviet military personnel would be withdrawn. In a separate meeting, Gorbachev reaffirmed that a Soviet military withdrawal would begin shortly. As they made their way to a post-meeting press conference, Baker asked Gorbachev if he would announce the withdrawal plans without expecting him to say yes. To Baker's surprise, Gorbachev agreed. In Havana, Fidel first learned of the planned withdrawal of Soviet troops from press reports of the Baker-Gorbachev news conference. The Cuban foreign ministry issued an indignant rebuke to Gorbachev for making the announcement without prior consultations. Two days later, Granma ran one of Fidel's signature editorials, lambasting the Soviet betrayal. The military contingent being withdrawn, the editorial noted, had been left in Cuba in 1962 as a symbol of the Soviet Union's commitment to Cuba's security. Now, as in 1962, Moscow had given in to U.S. demands without even a single word spoken to our country, and by doing so had given the United States a green light to carry out its plans of aggression against Cuba. Cuba, the editorial reminded Gorbachev, had always acted on principle, spurning Washington's blandishments to break with Moscow in exchange for better relations. The Soviets now repaid Cuba's loyalty 
by acquiescing to Washington's hegemonic delirium. Castro had long feared that Gorbachev's new thinking would sacrifice traditional allies to serve Soviet national interests. As the Soviet Union disengaged from regional conflicts and sought to end Cold War tensions, it was conceding to the United States the position of sole superpower, leaving former friends and allies like Cuba to fend for themselves. What will be Cuba's place in this world? Castro plaintively asked Soviet Latin America specialist Yuri Pavlov. Cuba Alone Every president since Eisenhower had castigated Fidel Castro for presiding over a dictatorship, but none before Bush had demanded, as a condition of better relations, that Cuba undergo regime change. The issues on Washington's agenda had always emphasized Cuban foreign policy, Havana's support for revolution in Latin America, and its expeditionary forces in Africa, as well as its strategic relationship with the Soviet Union. In early 1989, these were still the issues that Secretary Baker emphasized when he cabled U.S. diplomatic posts to deny rumors that Bush would improve relations with Cuba. By late 1989, however, Cuban troops had come home from Africa, Havana was normalizing relations with its Latin neighbors, and the Soviet Union was abandoning its strategic commitments abroad. The foreign policy issues had been rendered moot. Yet better relations were still not in the cards. For Washington, the new international balance of forces revived the dream of rolling back the revolution. After the failure of the CIA's covert operations to unseat Fidel in the 1960s, regime change in Cuba was not a practical possibility. But as the collapse of European communism sent the Cuban economy reeling, that calculus changed and Washington's demands changed with it. The United States, Bush declared, would normalize relations only if Cuba abandoned socialism and adopted multi-party electoral democracy. On May 20, 1991, Cuban Independence Day, Bush spelled out what he expected. Our goals for the Cuban nation, shared by Cubans everywhere, are plain and clear. Freedom and democracy, Mr. Castro, not sometime, not some day, but now. If Cuba holds fully free and fair elections under international supervision, respects human rights, and stops subverting its neighbors, we can expect relations between our two countries to improve significantly. In short, Cuba could have normal relations with the United States only if it capitulated. 7. Clinton From Calibrated Response to Parallel Positive Steps the embargo is a kind of Gordian knot, as complex as it is cruel. I'm not sure Clinton has Alexander the Great's sword to be able to cut it. Fidel Castro to Diane Sawyer, March 1993 In late August 1994, the Nobel Prize-winning novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez traveled to Martha's Vineyard for a private dinner with President Bill Clinton. Gabo wanted to come and talk to Clinton about Cuba recalled Rose Styron, who, along with her famous husband William, hosted the evening at their rambling island home. But neither the Styrons nor the majority of the other luminaries at the dinner table, Mexican writer Carlos Fuentes and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State William Lures among them, knew that Garcia Marquez was there as a secret emissary between Havana and Washington. While the guests gathered for fried chicken with rice and gravy, the writer presented the president with a private proposal from Fidel Castro 
to end the Balsero crisis, the flood of Cubans taking to the sea in rickety rafts, inner tubes, and small boats to cross the Florida Strait. The next day, Garcia Marquez left the vineyard on a private jet provided by the Mexican government and flew on to Havana to report to Castro on President Clinton's response. Like his predecessors, Clinton engaged in a range of secret talks with Cuba, although normalizing relations never made it onto the agenda because the president placed a higher priority on electoral votes in Florida than on relations with Havana. In his first term, the 1994 rafters migration crisis necessitated negotiations with Havana, resulting in two major migration accords. In his second term, he pursued dialogue on issues of mutual interest, including counter-narcotics and counter-terrorism cooperation. Clinton was also more open to using soft power, actively fostering people-to-people -people ties for the first time since the 1970s. By improving the atmosphere of state-to-state -state relations and expanding societal engagement, the Clinton team consciously aimed to build a political constituency for improving relations, both in the United States and in Cuba. Castro's decision to shoot down two small planes off the Cuban coast in February 1996 and Washington's reaction fundamentally changed the parameters of U.S.-Cuban relations by inscribing U.S. economic sanctions into law. Nevertheless, creative White House strategists found ways to move relations forward. We needed a dance, not to the same music, but to a similar beat, where each side pursued interests independently recall a former White House official. It's like a minuet in which the partners do not touch each other much, but go through choreographed steps. We do things, they do things. But no one has to make concessions that cause political problems at home. Clinton's Campaign Calculus Personally, Clinton understood the folly of a hostile U.S. policy toward Cuba. Anybody with half a brain could see the embargo was counterproductive he later told a confidant in the Oval Office. It defied wiser policies of engagement that we had pursued with some communist countries even at the height of the Cold War. Since the Reagan era, Republicans had harvested the Cuban exile vote by snarling at Castro, Clinton noted, but no one bothered to think forward about consequence. Politically, however, Clinton understood the imperative to snarl. In 1992, the electoral road to the White House ran through Florida. If Clinton could make inroads in the staunchly conservative Cuban-American community, which normally voted Republican by overwhelming margins, he might carry the state. A consummate politician, Clinton was determined to appeal to Cuban-Americans on the single issue that determined their votes, relations with Havana. On April 23, 1992, Clinton attended a fundraiser at Victor's Cafe in the heart of Little Havana. Victor's large, elegant dining room, with its high ceiling and terracotta tile floor accented by tropical plants, made it a favorite venue for Cuban-American political soirees. Some 300 of Miami's wealthiest Cuban-Americans were there, checkbooks in hand. Clinton did not disappoint. I think the George H.W. Bush administration has missed a big opportunity to put the hammer down on Fidel Castro and Cuba, he told the largely Republican audience. I have read the Torricelli-Graham bill, and I like it. By intensifying U.S. economic sanctions, the Cuban Democracy Act, CDA, the official title of the Torricelli-Graham bill, was intended to wreak havoc on that island, according to its sponsor, 
Congressman Robert G. Torricelli, Democrat of New Jersey. It was Torricelli, Clinton's top campaign advisor on Latin America, who organized the fundraiser at Victor's Cafe. The congressman from New Jersey could turn out Miami's Cuban-American elite because of his friendship with Jorge Mascanosa, founder and president of the anti-Castro Cuban-American National Foundation, CANF. Torricelli and Mascanosa were a political odd couple, drawn together by the mother's milk of politics, money. Although most Cuban-Americans were Republicans, Mascanosa and his Free Cuba Political Action Committee always lobbied both sides of the aisle. When Torricelli became chairman of the House Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere Affairs in 1991, Mascanosa and his friends began contributing to Torricelli's campaign coffers. Both men of outsized egos, intolerant of disagreement, and willing to flout convention to get their way, Mascanosa and Torricelli hit it off right away. By 1992, only Congresswoman Ileana Roslatinen, Republican of Florida, the first Cuban-American elected to Congress, garnered more campaign contributions from Miami Cubans than Torricelli. Whatever the foundation wants, the foundation gets, Torricelli told his committee staff. On a yacht in Coral Gables, Torricelli and his new patrons drafted the Cuban Democracy Act in the summer of 1991. The bill's intent was to tighten the U.S. economic embargo at a time when the Cuban economy was reeling from the collapse of the Soviet Union. It reinstated the ban on trade with Cuba by the subsidiaries of U.S. corporations abroad, a ban President Gerald Ford had lifted in 1975 to advance Henry Kissinger's secret dialogue with Havana. The Torricelli bill also banned vessels that traveled to Cuba from coming to the United States for 100 days and gave the president authority to cut foreign aid to any country aiding Cuba. Finally, the bill specified that the embargo should be lifted only in the event of democratic elections in Cuba. In addition to these sticks, as Torricelli called them, the bill also included carrots, authorizing increased people-to-people -people contact, humanitarian assistance, and sales of medicine. Carrots notwithstanding, Torricelli's stated intention was unambiguous. Castro must be brought to his knees. President Bush opposed the Torricelli bill at first. Its sanctions on U.S. companies operating abroad promised to cause diplomatic headaches with U.S. allies who saw it as an extraterritorial infringement on their sovereignty. In Bush's judgment, the incremental impact of tightening the embargo was not worth the cost. But Bill Clinton's avid support for the bill forced Bush to endorse it. On October 24, 1992, the president flew to Miami and signed the Cuban Democracy Act into law in front of Mascanosa and his CANF entourage. Clinton's support for the Torricelli bill endeared him to the hardline exile community. He raised some $275,000 in campaign contributions from Cuban Americans, several CANF directors among them. Most importantly, he received Mascanosa's political blessing. After meeting Clinton in Tampa just before the November election, Moss told the press that Cuban Americans need not fear a Bill Clinton administration. Clinton won 22% of the Cuban American vote, more than any Democrat since Jimmy Carter, but not enough to carry Florida. Clinton's successful courtship of Mascanosa proved to be a Faustian bargain. As quid pro quo, Moss expected to own the Cuba issue during Clinton's presidency as the president-elect soon discovered. When Clinton nominated Mario El Baeza, a black Cuban-American corporate attorney from New Jersey, 
As Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, the White House thought the Cuban-American community would be pleased. But Baeza was not part of what Fidel Castro disparagingly called the Miami Mafia. Baeza and his family had immigrated to the United States before the Revolution, so they were not exiles. He did not live in Miami and had no social or political ties to the community there. He was black, whereas most of Miami's Cuban-American elite were white. Moreover, he had committed the unpardonable sin of traveling to Havana in June 1992 for a conference on foreign trade and investment opportunities. When word of Baeza's impending appointment leaked to the press, complaints poured in from Miami, orchestrated by CANF. Torricelli also announced his opposition because Baeza had once expressed concern that the Cuban Democracy Act might harm trade relations with European allies. Faced with this pressure, the White House backed down. When Clinton sent a list of State Department nominees to the Senate in late January, Baeza's name was on it, but it had been crossed out. Instead, the post went to Alexander F. Watson, a Foreign Service officer with long experience in Latin America, who happened to be the only senior career officer available. Pursuing a More Enlightened Policy Not only did Torricelli and Mascanosa sink Baeza's nomination, they also won an appointment for Torricelli's senior staff assistant, Richard A. Nuccio, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. At the State Department, the career diplomats regarded Nuccio with suspicion, but his interest in Cuba and his willingness to work on it full-time gave him an advantage. Watson was happy to keep his distance from the issue. At the National Security Council, Richard Feinberg, the Latin American office director, decided early on that Cuba would be the black hole of Latin American policy, consuming all available time and energy unless he stayed away from it. I didn't want to become the desk officer on Cuba, Feinberg explained. Torricelli and Mascanosa trusted Nuccio, but unbeknownst to them, he regarded their implosion model of regime change in Cuba as wrong and dangerous. The intent of the CDA, he told Watson, was to maximize pressure and force an internal revolt, despite the potential for chaos and widespread violence. Rather than a Romanian solution 90 miles off the U.S. coast, Nuccio believed U.S. interests would be better served by an Eastern European-style velvet revolution in Cuba. Pursuing a Caribbean Ostpolitik would be a far better strategy. The principal instrument to promote change in Cuba that is more likely to be peaceful is to strengthen the civil society that has been so devastated by thirty years of dictatorship, he wrote to Watson. The lesson of the collapse of the Soviet bloc was that empowering artists, students, activists, and even military officers could create a democratic core for a post-communist transition. Nuccio opposed any accommodation with the Castro regime, but he supported strengthening the carrots in the CDA to build bridges to Cuban civil society, the people-to-people -people contacts known as Track 2, which Nuccio suggestively referred to in secret memos as penetrative programs, even if that meant dialogue and collaboration with the government. The Cuban Democracy Act gives important flexibility to the new administration to adjust the balance between sticks and carrots in the law. Nuccio explained in a transition paper written during the campaign, and most importantly, provides the political cover necessary to carry out a more enlightened policy toward Cuba. 
Among the enlightened initiatives he recommended for Clinton's first 100 days were to publicly reassure Havana that the United States posed no military threat to Cuba and had no aggressive intentions. Such an announcement could be one of several confidence-building measures. Another would be a concerted effort to prevent armed attacks against Cuba by U.S.-based groups by vigorously enforcing the Neutrality Act. Quiet consultation with the Cuban government, he noted, may be necessary to carry out effectively this policy. To promote people-to-people -people contacts, Nuccio recommended moving quickly to relax regulations on travel, modernize telecommunications, and expand family remittances. This is worth doing, Nuccio wrote, even if it requires negotiation with the Cuban government. After all, Nuccio added, President Clinton ran for office on a theme of change. It would be ironic if Cuba policy were an area where his representatives were to argue for no change. In both tone and substance, the agenda Nuccio laid out shaped Cuba policy during Clinton's first year in office. On May 3, 1993, in his first major policy address on Latin America, Deputy Secretary of State Clifford Wharton declared, The United States poses no military threat to Cuba. We hope the Cuban people will win their freedom through the kind of peaceful transition which has brought so many other nations into the democratic community. To reinforce the point, U.S. officials began alerting Cuban authorities in advance of routine naval maneuvers near the island and opened low-level discussions on cooperation against narcotics trafficking. U.S. officials also dialed back the anti-Castro rhetoric. We weren't making these hysterical comments about Cuba, Richard Feinberg recalled. We tried to lower the temperature a little bit. In Havana, the Cubans recognized and appreciated the change in tone. There is less verbal aggression this year in the White House than in the last twelve years, Raul Castro told a Mexican reporter. In late May, U.S. Customs officials arrested nine members of the Alpha 66 paramilitary group on weapons charges as they prepared to sail for Cuba to incite an uprising. In a clear warning to Cuban exiles, the State Department announced that violations of the U.S. Neutrality Act would be vigorously prosecuted, and, for the first time, Washington sought to discourage Cubans from using violence to flee the island. After a Cuban pilot commandeered a jet with 52 passengers aboard and flew it to Miami, the Justice Department invited Cuban security officers to come to the United States and testify before a grand jury weighing an indictment for air piracy. Although the case was eventually dropped, it represented one of the few U.S. attempts to prosecute Cuban hijackers, a failing the Cuban government had been complaining about since the late 1970s. In addition to promoting a more relaxed security atmosphere, the Clinton administration moved quickly to expand people-to-people -people contacts. In May 1993, the Treasury Department approved licenses for several U.S. physicians to travel to Cuba as part of an international team investigating the outbreak of a rare disease, optical neuritis, which had afflicted thousands of Cuban citizens. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention was then authorized to conduct a joint study with Cuba's Ministry of Health to identify the cause, a vitamin deficiency combined with cigar smoke. In June, the Treasury Department unveiled a new set of regulations licensing travel to Cuba for humanitarian, religious, and educational purposes, vastly expanding the number of U.S. visitors. At the same time, the State Department began granting more visas to Cuban musicians, artists, and scholars for travel to the United States. 
To handle the flow, the administration approved additional daily flights between Miami and Havana. In July, the State Department announced guidelines under which U.S. telecommunications companies would be allowed to upgrade the pathetically inadequate telephone service between Cuba and the United States. Using equipment that had not been updated since 1961, AT&T could route less than 1% of the 60 million calls originating annually in the United States. Because of the embargo, none of the revenue generated by the AT&T service had been paid to Cuba. The July guidelines provided that Cuba, for the first time, would share the revenue produced by the new service. The Cubans reciprocated with gestures of their own. In May, the government released four prominent dissidents from prison. In July, Castro announced that he would ease travel restrictions on Cuban-American visits. In September, the Cubans handed over two cocaine traffickers captured when they sought refuge in Cuban territorial waters. That same month, the two governments completed secret negotiations on an agreement in which Cuba would accept the return of 1,500 emigres who had come to the United States during the Mariel boatlift and subsequently committed felonies. Cuba came away from the accord with little more than a vague hope that its concession would set the stage for broader bilateral talks. Accepting the excludables was an unmistakable signal that Fidel Castro saw an opening for dialogue with this new, young, democratic president. Clinton reminded Fidel of JFK, the president he admired most, Castro told Diane Sawyer of ABC News. I have no kind of personal conflict with Clinton, Castro noted with a hint of hopefulness. It's a new administration. In August, Castro took the unusual step of personally calling for talks with Washington. I think that in essence we should discuss any differences between the United States and Cuba, he told reporters. It is a simple matter of being able to talk, negotiate, without any conditions. We do not place any conditions, but we cannot accept impositions either. So, the only condition is that we talk and negotiate without any conditions. What U.S. officials called Castro's charm offensive fell on deaf ears in the White House. Even early in his first term, Clinton's re-election interests drove policy toward Cuba. The president's domestic political advisers lived in fear of how the Cuban-American community would react to any hint of an opening to Havana. It was just very clear that the political direction from the White House was that we don't want to be out front on this issue— and that we are very responsive to the Cuban-Americans, NSC official Richard Feinberg explained. Clinton really wanted to carry Florida. That's what's driving this. That was numero uno. The White House routinely sought the advice of a small group of Cuban-American Democrats and campaign donors whose entree to the president was through Hillary Clinton's sister-in-law, Miami attorney Maria Victoria Arias. Her faxes would go directly into the Oval Office. Feinberg recalled. The White House was so sensitive about keeping the group happy that when the NSC scheduler heard they were coming to Washington for a meeting, she ran into Deputy National Security Advisor Sandy Berger's office, shouting, The Cubans are coming! The Cubans are coming! Apart from the politics of the issue, even people like Feinberg and Nuccio, who favored a gradual relaxation of tensions, doubted the utility of broad negotiations. I don't think Castro really wanted liberalization, Feinberg explained. In a memorandum in August 1993, Nuccio put the question rhetorically to Assistant Secretary Watson. 
What do we have to dialogue about except the date of their departure? This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. The Calibrated Response Debate Some officials, including Watson, had a more optimistic view of what might be possible. He penned a note to Nuccio, handwritten to keep it out of the computer system where other officials could access it, proposing a dialogue on democracy. I have a simple but potentially explosive idea, Watson wrote. Could we make a dramatic offer to enter into a dialogue with Castro focused on how we, and perhaps others, could help Cuba undertake the political and economic changes that are necessary, perhaps devise schemes for bringing democracy about, set up an electoral regime, human rights ombudsman, farmers' markets, microenterprise, privatization, etc.? Of course, if changes are made, we could relax the embargo step by step as relevant to the specific changes. For Watson, a dialogue on democratic transition through a series of reciprocal initiatives, political reforms on the Cuban side, and a piecemeal lifting of the embargo on the U.S. side made perfect Washington sense. Such reciprocity was specifically authorized in a little-noticed clause in the CDA, Section 1703, which simply stated, It should be the policy of the United States to be prepared to reduce the sanctions in carefully calibrated ways in response to positive developments in Cuba. The language had been conceived and drafted by Nuccio. I invented the phrase calibrated response as a way to offer to negotiate with the Cubans without giving them what they wanted and domestic politics opposed, direct talks, Nuccio recounted. We could do a shadow dance and perhaps move the relationship to a point where there might be enough incentive for an administration to take the risk of direct negotiations. But calibrated response could also operate within a framework of direct negotiations rather than preceding it, as Watson now envisioned. Such an approach would meet to a large extent the concerns of our critics at home and abroad, he scribbled to Nuccio. We'd take flack from the anti-dialogueros, but they could not complain too much because we'd be focused on changing the system. Since the earliest dialogue between Richard Goodwin and Che Guevara in 1961, the Cubans had made it crystal clear that changing the system would never be on the negotiating table. Yet, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the descent of Cuba's economy into a dire crisis known as the Special Period, some U.S. officials speculated that Fidel Castro might be enticed to negotiate the denouement of Cuban socialism. All the European communist regimes had collapsed. Surely Castro would see the writing on the wall and opt for a peaceful transition into a new era of normal U.S.-Cuban relations. Castro might agree to a democratic transition that he believed could preserve the gains of the revolution as he sees them and that offers him a graceful exit, noted one confidential State Department memo, seizing the initiative to promote a soft landing. Cuba was certainly reeling from the loss of Soviet aid. A CIA National Intelligence Estimate, NIE, circulated on August 1, 1993, concluded that there is a better-than-even chance that Fidel Castro's government will fall within the next few years. Titled The Outlook for Castro and Beyond and Classified Secret, the NIE painted a grim picture of Cuba's crisis. Since 1989, the economy had contracted by more than 40 percent and would likely decline further. Approximately 85 percent of Cuba's trade had been with the Eastern Bloc. After the collapse of communism, most of that trade evaporated. Soviet economic subsidies, some 4 to $5 billion annually, disappeared overnight, 
reducing Cuba's capacity to import by 75%. The inability to purchase raw materials, such as fuel and fertilizer, caused massive production losses in both manufacturing and agriculture, resulting in widespread unemployment. Electricity blackouts of 10 to 16 hours a day were commonplace in Havana. The impact on the population already has been devastating, the intelligence analysts noted. Food shortages and distribution problems have caused malnutrition and disease, and the difficulties of subsisting will intensify. According to the CIA, regime-threatening instability could occur at any time, and serious instability in Cuba will have an immediate impact on the United States, warned the NIE, including massive uncontrolled migration, the likely involvement of the exile community in the spreading civil strife, and pressure for U.S. or international military intervention. Despite 30 years of efforts to destabilize Cuba's government, U.S. officials now realized that they were woefully unprepared for its demise. The fundamental national security threat facing the United States from Cuba is of a societal collapse that leads to widespread violence, Nuccio wrote to Watson in August 1993. That was the ultimate nightmare scenario, State Department official Philip Peters, a holdover from the Reagan-Bush years, argued to Watson shortly after the CIA estimate was distributed. Given the situation on the island, I would argue that policy continuity, or even marginal change, is not a low-risk option. It's positively scary. If Cuba collapsed, U.S. policymakers would be asked, why, when the storm was gathering, were we spending our time on issues such as family remittances, airline charter applications, hotel package deals, and telephone settlement rates? Where was the strategy? Echoing Watson, Peters suggested a dramatic new initiative to prompt a dialogue for democracy, to be announced in a speech by Secretary of State Warren Christopher. The purpose of the speech is to reframe the debate, Peters argued. If ever a foreign policy case cried out for dramatic U.S. leadership, Cuba today is that case. Within the State Department, however, there were divergent opinions of how, and even if, Cuba policy should be reframed. Nuccio agreed with Peters that U.S. policy had been too timid while a slow-motion crisis in Cuba gathered force but he opposed any major new initiative. The embargo was a statement of moral disapproval, Nuccio argued, and any relaxation of it would diminish Washington's moral stance. The carrots in the CDA were concessions enough. Nuccio also disparaged Peters's hint that perhaps Washington ought to take up Castro's offer of dialogue. Is Fidel a reliable interlocutor? Nuccio asked in a memo rebutting Peters's proposals. Are we dealing with merely an unpredictable or possibly unstable leader? What is the mechanism or dynamic by which engagement with Fidel leads to a different outcome, democratic transition, than that which Fidel expects from such an engagement, validation of the revolution? Given the lack of consensus, the idea of a major policy speech was shelved, but the debate did not subside. Testifying on November 18, 1993, before the House Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere Affairs, Assistant Secretary Watson called attention to the potential for a calibrated response, lifting parts of the embargo under certain circumstances. We are also willing to reduce the sanctions in carefully calibrated ways in response to positive developments in Cuba, he said, quoting the CDA. To date, he hastened to add, we have seen no movement toward democracy or towards respect for human rights. 
In late September 1993, Watson tasked Coordinator for Cuban Affairs Dennis Hayes to convene a small group of officials from across the U.S. government to think strategically about Cuba policy. Secrecy was paramount. No formal minutes would be kept of the meetings, and attendees were ordered not to use the word Cuba on their schedules. We want to avoid giving the impression that our discussions on Cuba signal a policy review, Hayes informed the officials from the NSC, CIA, Defense, Treasury, and Justice Departments who gathered for the first meeting. If word leaked out, they were to say they were meeting to develop contingency plans for another migration crisis. The secret agenda for the small group included contingency planning for various scenarios, including broad policy guidelines on how to respond quickly and firmly to events before domestic political debate can paralyze governmental actions. The small group also looked at initiatives that would provide benefits to Cuban people without helping the government and state-to-state confidence-building measures. Finally, officials were tasked to prepare contingency plans for what to do if Castro died, resigned, or was overthrown, if civil war broke out in Cuba, or if widespread hunger and disease spread through the island. Over the next nine months, the agencies represented in the small group developed several contingency plans, entitled Castro Death Incapacitation, Chaos Civil War, and Mass Exodus. But few of the other initiatives gained any traction because of the acrimonious disagreement among mid-level State Department and NSC officials. There was an internal war inside State's Bureau of Inter-American Affairs, Nuccio recalled. The small group was supposed to be a center for creative thinking, not paper production, he complained to Hayes. If new and bolder initiatives were not taken, control of Cuba policy would migrate away from us toward others on the NSC or the seventh floor. While NSC officials impatiently pressed the State Department to think creatively and originally about Cuba policy, Hayes and Michael Skoll, Watson's principal deputy assistant secretary, opposed any new initiatives. Easing the embargo or travel restrictions would put precious dollars into Castro's treasury at a time when he desperately needed hard currency to keep his economy afloat. Moreover, any relaxation of sanctions would cost Clinton his good standing with the Cuban-American community, Hayes argued in a May 1994 memo to Watson, posing the question, why would he want to risk losing this support? On Cuba, the president continues to speak the words we provide, Hayes boasted, suggesting that Watson ignore the pressure from the NSC. Only a few officials at NSC are upset because we have to date thwarted their efforts to change U.S. policy. In the summer of 1994, those NSC officials moved to take Cuba policy out of the hands of the State Department bureaucrats. I thought the notion that we had to wait until the Cuban regime collapsed before we engaged made no sense, Deputy National Security Advisor Samuel L. Sandy Berger told the authors. Engaging with Cuba in some way was not only good for the Cuban people, but it would create a dynamic in Cuba that would lead to liberalization and would help shape the perceptions of the Cuban people towards us. A greater vigor was needed in implementing exchanges, travel, and other civil society building measures, the NSC informed Watson. Those measures included increasing the flow of information and ideas into Cuba through licensed educational travel, expediting visas for Cubans to come to the United States for cultural and educational purposes, expanding radio and TV marti, and supporting independent groups on the island 
that could foster a culture of democracy. The proposed program would go far towards exposing Cubans to Americans and to American ideas, stated a draft memorandum that National Security Advisor Anthony Lake prepared for the President. We believe that initiatives can now be undertaken which will facilitate a nonviolent transition to democracy in Cuba. As part of the planning for a new initiative on Cuba, the NSC also revived the concept of calibrated response. A new staffer was tasked to develop a list of tit-for-tats with Cuba, which sanctions might be lifted or softened in response to clear steps toward democracy by the Castro regime. My work on calibrated responses was an attempt to begin to be creative in exploring a new avenue in the U.S.-Cuban relationship, the official recalled. The idea was to establish a new guideline for diplomacy and negotiations through which both sides could begin to make progress in improving the relationship. In the late summer of 1994, the NSC also resurrected the concept of a presidential speech on Cuba. Let me be specific. A draft of the speech read, As the Cuban government implements concrete and verifiable measures to free political prisoners and protect human rights, to guarantee freedom of speech, of the press, and of assembly, and establish free farmers' markets and authorize small businesses, we will unilaterally reduce sanctions affecting trade and seek to improve the full range of relations with Cuba and its people. By then, however, efforts to reframe Cuba policy were being overtaken, indeed overwhelmed, by the Balsero crisis. As thousands of Cubans took to the seas on anything that would float, White House officials went into crisis management mode, shelving any new initiatives. Yet even as the new Cuban exodus gathered force, Secretary of State Warren Christopher, appearing on the CBS News program Face the Nation, dangled the carrot of calibrated response as an incentive for Castro. If there are steps in a dramatic direction in Cuba, Christopher said, we'll respond in a carefully calibrated way. Secret Diplomacy and the Balsero Crisis In August 1994, the nightmare scenario U.S. officials had feared became reality. Desperate for a full meal, reliable electricity, and simple economic security, Cubans began to flee the island by the thousands, many on homemade rafts, balsas. In 1990, the first year of the economic crisis Cubans called the Special Period, 467 refugees had been picked up by the U.S. Coast Guard trying to cross the Florida Strait. In 1993, the first year of the Clinton administration, the number climbed to 3,656, even though such attempts at illegal exit were violations of Cuban law subject to imprisonment. Economic desperation and Havana's faltering interception capabilities will drive greater numbers of Cubans to attempt to leave the country. A special CIA intelligence analysis, Cuba, the Rising Specter of Illegal Migration, reported in May 1994. But the CIA also predicted that the chances for another mass migration along the lines of the 1980 Marielle exodus remain slim. By midsummer, however, the number of Cubans setting sail for Florida on makeshift rafts and leaky boats was reminiscent of Marielle. Worse, some were resorting to violence. In July, armed gangs hijacked Cuban tugboats, ferries, and even Navy ships, resulting in significant bloodshed. The most horrific episode took place on July 13th, when a group of 68 Cubans hijacked a tugboat and headed for Florida. 
Cuban police and three other boats pursued them. Whether intentionally, as the refugees believed, or unintentionally, as Cuban authorities claimed, the hijacked tugboat was rammed and sank. Thirty-seven people drowned, including women and children, a tragedy that caused the Castro government considerable embarrassment. On August 5th, two policemen were killed when hijackers tried to seize a ferry in Havana Harbor. The incident touched off widespread rioting along the waterfront as hundreds of people chanted anti-Castro slogans, fought with police, and looted stores. It was the worst anti-government demonstration in Cuba since 1959. That same evening, an angry Fidel Castro denounced Washington for encouraging hijackers by refusing to prosecute them and by limiting legal immigration. We cannot continue to guard the coasts of the United States, he warned. Unless Washington changed its immigration policy, we will stop blocking the departure of those who want to leave the country. The State Department warned Cuba that unleashing another uncontrolled exodus would have serious consequences. Other agencies put their contingency plan into action. On August 11th, Attorney General Janet Reno announced that the Coast Guard would seize ships headed to or from Cuba for the purpose of picking up refugees and that any U.S. residents aboard would be prosecuted for smuggling illegal aliens. That same evening, following yet another hijacking in which a young naval officer was killed, Castro announced that Cuban police would no longer stop people trying to leave the island so long as they did not try to hijack boats or planes. He blamed the U.S. embargo for aggravating Cuba's economic problems, causing people to want to leave, and he blamed U.S. immigration policy for making it almost impossible for them to emigrate legally. Now free to go, Cubans streamed to the beaches with small boats, rafts, inner tubes, and cars outfitted with pontoons in place of tires to set out on the perilous ocean journey. Their numbers were staggering. On August 18th, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued 535 rafters at sea. Less than a week later, on August 23rd, the one-day number reached 3,253. The Balsero Crisis was underway. For the President, the crisis triggered a personal sense of déjà vu. Thirteen years earlier, when he was running for re-election as governor of Arkansas, rioting by Marielle refugees detained at Fort Chafee contributed to the one and only electoral defeat of his political career. He also recalled how weak and ineffective President Carter appeared during that mass exodus. No new Marielle, White House aides repeated to one another as the Cuban crisis developed. Remember Fort Chafee. The political risks posed by the crisis extended well beyond the White House. Florida's governor, Lawton Childs, was locked in a tight re-election race with Jeb Bush, son of the former president. The influx of refugees from Cuba, Haiti, and elsewhere had severely strained Florida's social services, and state politics were already roiled by an anti-immigration backlash. Governor Childs declared a state of emergency and called on Clinton to take federal action to stem the human tide. Childs had an ally in Attorney General Janet Reno, former chief prosecutor in Dade County, Florida. Together, they convinced Clinton that the only way to staunch the flow of rafters was to demagnetize the United States by denying them entry. Contingency plans for a mass exodus called for the Coast Guard to intercept and turn back Cubans in boats. But in practice, the Coast Guard could not turn back rafts that were barely afloat. Once the refugees had been rescued, what should be done with them? If brought to the United States, they would aggravate Childs' political problems 
and more Cubans would be encouraged to follow. But they could not be sent back to Cuba without the Cuban government's consent to take them, and repatriation would be politically explosive. Cuban Americans would scream that Washington was delivering the freedom seekers back into the arms of Castro's totalitarian dictatorship. At a high-level principals meeting of the National Security Council on August 18th, NSC Senior Director for Democracy, Morton Halperin, came up with an interim solution. Detain Cubans rescued at sea at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo until they could be processed as legal immigrants or accepted into other countries. A similar detention policy had successfully ended a wave of Haitian rafters the previous spring. Still, the proposal effectively reversed 28 years of leniency toward Cuban refugees who had always been granted admission to the United States. No doubt the change would provoke howls of protest from Cuban Americans, Jorge Mascanosa first among them. But there was not any other option, Halperin recalled. We had a very short meeting, and I wrote a relatively short memo to the President that said, We met. We all agreed we have got to take them back to Guantanamo. Clinton approved. Once the detention policy had been announced, the White House's next priority was political damage control in Miami. Governor Childs took on the role of mediator between the president and the exile community's self-appointed leader, Mascanosa. The reality was that if we were going to make an interdiction policy work, we couldn't do it without Moss, explained a senior aide to Childs. You couldn't have Moss outside the tent pissing in. Moss made four demands as the price of his public support. The president would have to cut off family remittances to Cuba, sever air links, expand TV and Radio Marti, and impose a naval blockade on the island to topple the regime. The morning after Reno's late-night announcement, Childs conveyed Moscanos's demands to the White House, along with the warning that if they were not met, Moss would publicly denounce the new policy. Childs reported back to Moss that the White House was open to his first three demands, but not the blockade. That evening, Clinton interrupted his own 48th birthday party in the White House to meet with Childs, Mascanosa, and several other Cuban-American leaders who had flown to Washington on Mascanosa's private jet to negotiate with the president. "'You must kick out the last leg of the stool,' Mascanosa told Clinton, banging his fist on the table and demanding a naval blockade. The president would not impose a blockade, but in what aides called Operation Mollification, he did agree to impose the economic sanctions Moss demanded and to expand TV and Radio Marti. Not surprisingly, Fidel Castro reacted angrily. Halting the remittances, estimated at between $150 million and $500 million annually, was certain to damage the already deteriorating standard of living of thousands of ordinary Cubans. By making life more difficult, Washington was aggravating the very conditions that prompted migration in the first place. We say that the blockade is the fundamental thing that encourages this, and the response is more blockade, Castro complained. We say that the subversive broadcasts have been continuously encouraging illegal departures, and the response is more subversive broadcasts. But what galled Castro most was that Clinton appeared to have handed control of his Cuba policy to Mascanosa. No one would ever have believed it, that there would be mafiosos of this type there in the White House discussing extremely important measures of an international nature. He complained. To the administration's chagrin, the new detention policy failed to stem the exodus. 
the rafters simply did not believe U.S. warnings that they would be detained indefinitely and never admitted to the United States. As Guantanamo rapidly filled up with thousands of balseros and hardliners in the exile community clamored for more aggressive action, U.S. officials scrambled for a new approach. If Cuban refugees kept coming despite the detention policy, the only way to end the crisis was for the Cuban government to stop the rafters on the beaches. But the new sanctions gave Castro no incentive to help extricate Washington from its dilemma. Coercive diplomacy against Cuba is not credible, Nuccio warned on August 21st, and the use of force was virtually unthinkable. Negotiations were a better option. Nuccio recommended opening a private channel through a third country intermediary to send a message that we are prepared to listen to proposals from Cuban officials on migration, Gitmo, flights, remittances, food, and medicine. At a White House press briefing the next day, veteran negotiator and Undersecretary of State Peter Tarnoff extended the olive branch of dialogue. We are prepared to discuss legal emigration with the Cuban government, he declared, reminding reporters that the United States and Cuba had convened such talks a number of times since 1984. To allay exile fears that the talks would lead to broader negotiations on U.S.-Cuban relations, Tarnoff maintained that there was no prospect of dialogue on other matters. As Tarnoff publicly called for talks to end the crisis, President Clinton undertook a more aggressive back-channel effort to open a dialogue. In an extraordinary historical coincidence, at the very same moment, Fidel Castro also concluded that the time was ripe for a back-channel approach. On August 23rd, both leaders reached out to each other through separate, high-level intermediaries. With two phone calls, Clinton and Castro initiated what would become one of the most intricate episodes of secret talks in the history of dialogue between Washington and Havana. Telephone Tree Diplomacy The Cubans made the first call. At 11 a.m. August 23rd, one of Castro's closest comrades, filmmaker Alfredo Guevara, telephoned Max Lesnick, a prominent member of Miami's Cuban community. Lesnick had fought with Fidel in the Sierra Maestra, broken with him after the revolution, and fled to Florida in 1961. After supporting violent efforts to overthrow Castro in the 1960s, Lesnick became one of the leading voices of moderation in Miami. In conversations with Guevara as the rafters crisis unfolded, Lesnick had urged a solution through a mediation. Now Castro was using him to get a discreet message to a unique high-level mediator, the 39th President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Transmit to Carter that we have no objection to whatever paradigm he wants to use in the search for solutions to the situation created between Cuba and the U.S., Castro's initial message stated. We think his presence as a serious, capable, and prestigious person could be constructive and useful. To establish a telephone chain for communications between Carter and Castro, Lesnick called his friend Alfredo Duran. A Bay of Pigs veteran and prestigious Cuban-American lawyer in Miami, Duran had served as chairman of the Florida Democratic Party during Carter's 1976 presidential campaign, and he remained personally close to the ex-president. After talking to Lesnick, Duran called Carter and briefed him on Castro's interest in having him act as a mediator between Havana and Washington. Carter responded positively but cautiously. He would only do so if there was no alternative, Carter remembered telling Duran. 
and if my role would remain secret but approved in advance by both governments. Employing this cumbersome chain of communication, Castro Guevara Lesnik Duran Carter, Carter Duran Lesnik Guevara Castro, messages traveled back and forth between the United States and Cuba over the next five days. The first exchanges addressed Carter's request for a reaffirmation of his role from Castro. On August 25th, Guevara called Lesnik from Castro's office and told him to pass the message to Carter that Cuba had a great amount of confidence in your ability and honor. Carter then conferred with Undersecretary of State Peter Tarnoff and received authorization from the Clinton White House to act as an intermediary. As Carter understood them, the issues to be addressed were Cuba's desire for talks on broader issues than migration, whether Washington would honor the 1984 Immigration Accord, which the Cubans interpreted as permitting 20,000 migrants annually, but which had yielded fewer than 2,000 visas per year since it was signed, and whether Havana would allow detainees in Guantanamo to return home if they so desired. Tarnoff conveyed the U.S. reaction, which Carter described as somewhat equivocal about Cuba's demands. The former president forwarded Tarnoff's message to Duran, who passed it on to Lesnik for transmission to Havana. Life-threatening squalls in the Florida Strait and Carter's own upcoming trip to Africa forced him to quicken the pace of the secret communications. On Friday, August 26th, he placed a call directly to the Oval Office. I outlined what I considered to be minimum concessions and offered to withdraw my involvement or to continue with his personal approval, Carter remembered telling President Clinton. I needed some flexibility in dealing with Castro. Clinton put off an immediate decision, but Tarnoff soon called Carter back and reaffirmed the administration's desire for me to continue my effort. Carter called Duran with this encouraging message. The White House now had full knowledge of Carter's proposals to resolve the crisis. Carter was ready to go to New York to talk with someone who has Castro's trust and who could arrange for Carter and Castro to confer directly. Later in the day, the telephone tree provided Carter with Castro's response. The Cuban ambassador to the U.N., Fernando Ramirez, was ready to talk to Carter in New York. Castro also offered, for the first time, to talk directly with the former president. He provided three private telephone numbers for Carter to use and suggested some specific times over the weekend. That evening, Carter conferred at length with Ambassador Ramirez. In his memoir, Beyond the White House, the former president described his proposal that talks begin the following week in Washington or New York, that the agenda extend beyond immigration, that the outflow of boat people be stopped, that the U.S. immigration quota be raised to 28,000 annually, and that Cubans in Guantanamo desiring to return to Cuba could do so and not be punished. On August 27th, Carter and Castro finally spoke directly. Castro asked Carter to relay to him the exact terms of the U.S. proposal. He then shared his reaction. Cuba was concerned about legal immigration levels, withdrawal of the new sanctions Clinton had just announced, and the future of U.S. hostility. Castro wanted talks not only about migration, but about the embargo as well. Carter did not have all the answers Castro wanted, but promised to convey his questions to the White House. Castro agreed that, he would send high-level officials to New York on Wednesday to negotiate in good faith. On August 28th, however, as Carter worked to finalize planning for the negotiations, he received an unexpected phone call from Vice President Al Gore. 
Gore expressed his thanks for what had been accomplished, said that an alternative communication channel had been established, and asked that I refrain from further participation. Carter recalled, Clinton had effectively fired the former president as an intermediary. Top officials in Washington, who had approved previously, have now requested that I cease my communication with you, except to fulfill my promise of a response from last night, Carter informed Castro in his last communication, this one typed, signed, and passed to Cuba's UN mission. He then updated the Cuban leader on Washington's reaction to the issues Castro had raised in their phone conversation. I am now informed that the Wednesday meeting will be confined more strictly to immigration matters than I had earlier believed. I was told that other avenues of communication, unknown to me, will be used to respond to the questions of a. rescinding recent actions by President Clinton if rafters are restrained, and b. a confirmation of the non-aggression policy expressed by President Bush in May 1991. Carter expressed his regret for this development and offered Fidel his appreciation of your frankness and constructive responses. My hope is that you and American officials will be successful in finding some common ground on which to resolve the present crisis. Carter's message concluded, and to prepare for a future resolution of long-term differences. The Salinas Garcia Marquez Channel The alternative communication channel that replaced Jimmy Carter was the President of Mexico, Carlos Salinas de Gotari. Salinas was tight with Castro, Clinton explained, and gave the U.S. President his own communication channel over the silent wall of non-recognition between the United States and Cuba. Unbeknownst to Carter, the White House had been secretly using Salinas as a parallel interlocutor with Castro the entire time that Carter had been communicating with the Cuban leader. Now, with the talk set to begin and the Cubans demanding a broader agenda, including the embargo, Clinton decided to turn off Carter, whom he did not trust, to act as a neutral intermediary. Working through Salinas made it easier for Clinton to kick the can down the road, Peter Tarnoff recalled, referring to Castro's demand for broader talks. Salinas was more desirable since he would not force policy on the administration, whereas Carter would have pressed him aggressively, if not emphatically, to have a dialogue. Carter was more than a conduit. He was someone who would have his own ideas. At half-past eight on the evening of August 23rd, the same day Castro reached out to Carter, Clinton placed a phone call to Salinas at his Los Pinos residence in Mexico City. Clinton was worried about the flood of Cubans taking to the seas, he explained. The crisis carried serious repercussions for the United States, but the anti-immigration feelings it would unleash had implications for Mexican immigrants as well. Clinton asked Salinas, to find a way to establish direct contact with the Cuban government to better understand the Cuban government's position. I needed a connection to the Cuban government, someone who would be completely discreet while having direct and immediate access to Fidel Castro, Salinas would recall. Right from the start, I knew who the right person was. I telephoned Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Within thirty minutes, the Nobel laureate writer arrived at the presidential residence. Salinas briefed him on Carter's request. Garcia Marquez, an old friend of Fidel's, picked up the phone and called Havana. Soon thereafter, Salinas was on the line with the Cuban leader. Without mentioning President Clinton, Salinas conveyed his recent communications with the U.S. government about the Balseros. The crisis was Washington's responsibility, Castro insisted. 
The exodus reflected an untenable situation the Americans themselves had created by means of the economic blockade and the Torricelli Bill, Cuban Democracy Act. The United States had failed to live up to the 1984 Migration Agreement, which provided for 20,000 Cubans a year to migrate legally, Castro complained. Nevertheless, the Cuban leader was willing to enter into talks with Washington to seek a resolution, but only so long as they would acknowledge the underlying cause which was the blockade and its economic effect on the Cuban people. Clinton personally called again the next day to debrief Salinas on his conversation with Castro. Castro was willing to negotiate an end to the crisis, but wanted an agenda for talks that included the blockade, Salinas reported. Clinton wanted a dialogue about migration, not about other subjects. The embargo could be discussed at some future date, Clinton indicated, but not under the present circumstances. According to Salinas, Clinton insisted that it was advisable to sit down and solve the problem before the situation became unmanageable. Clinton's depiction of the conversation, as told to biographer Taylor Branch at the time, was less diplomatic. He did not have a hard-on for Castro, Clinton said he told Salinas. He did not want a fight. He was open to exploratory talks and exchanges on the side, but he served notice he would refuse to let Castro dictate the immigration policy of the United States. I don't care if I have to put 50,000 Cubans in Guantanamo, Clinton warned. To convey Clinton's message, Salinas dispatched Garcia Marquez to Cuba aboard the Mexican presidential plane. That night, and into the early morning of August 25th, Salinas and Castro conferred for several hours by phone. In that pivotal conversation, Castro promised the Mexican president that he would reduce the departures of boats from Cuban beaches and accede to Clinton's wish that only migration issues be discussed in the initial meetings. I understand the U.S. proposal. We can talk about immigration without mentioning other issues, because opening the dialogue to other matters could bring political problems in its wake, Castro told Salinas. We will manage to talk without damage to the prestige of either party. Dinner Diplomacy On August 27th, Salinas spoke to Castro again, this time about taking advantage of a fortuitous opportunity, an upcoming dinner party on Martha's Vineyard that both Clinton and Garcia Marquez would attend. With the Clintons vacationing near the estate of writer William Styron and his wife Rose, the summer gathering provided a perfect cover for Garcia Marquez to carry a message from Castro directly to the U.S. president. Two days later, President Clinton wined and dined with Garcia Marquez at the Styron's home. The seating chart paired the author and the president at one end of a long, oval dinner table. Mexican writer Carlos Fuentes, Mexico's former foreign minister Bernardo Sepulveda, former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America William Lures, Garcia Marquez's interpreter, Patricia Zapeda, and host Rose Styron were seated with them. Over a sumptuous meal, Garcia Marquez attempted to engage Clinton in a conversation about a new U.S. approach to Cuba. The writer provided an assessment of Fidel's psychology and how the president could appeal to it. He pointed out that over the years Washington had moved the goalposts on its demands. Today it was democratization, before, it had been breaking ties with the Soviet Union, getting the Cubans out of Angola and Ethiopia and Nicaragua. Over time, Garcia Marquez suggested, Cuba had complied with these requests, but the United States had not responded with even so much as an attempt at dialogue. 
Now there was another opportunity for talks and better bilateral ties. Washington's willingness to open up relations with Cuba would have a strong impact in the region, the Latin Americans at the table advised, rendering Castro's influence less relevant. Try and come to an understanding with Fidel, as he has a very good opinion of you, Garcia Marquez counseled Clinton. Clinton was polite at the beginning, but he didn't bite, noted Lures, who was listening closely to the conversation. When he realized he was being ambushed, he got less and less cooperative. The president just turned off, recalls Rose Styron, who was sitting next to Clinton. We need to change the subject, Lures suggested to Garcia Marquez in Spanish as the table talk grew tense. Garcia Marquez immediately asked the president about what books he had been reading, and Clinton began talking energetically about a William Faulkner novel he had just finished. This question opened Clinton up to one of the most interesting discussions about literature and ideas that I have heard, Lewis remembers. There was no further discussion of Cuba over dinner. At some private point during the long evening, Garcia Marquez shared Castro's message about the migration talks set to start the following week in New York. Clinton had a serious message of his own to convey to Castro. If the influx of Balseros continued, Cuba would receive a very different response from the United States than it had during the Marielle boatlift, when Jimmy Carter was president. Clinton reminded Garcia Marquez that Marielle had hurt him politically when he was running for re-election as governor of Arkansas. Castro has already cost me one election, Clinton warned. He can't have two. At the end of the evening, the writer retired to his hotel room and worked with his interpreter, Patricia Zapeda, on a report for Castro. Leaving early the next day on a Mexican government plane provided to him by President Salinas, he flew back to Mexico and then on to Havana to brief Fidel on Clinton's reaction. Resolving the Balsero Crisis With U.S.-Cuba migration negotiations set to start on September 1st, both sides used Salinas to communicate acceptable terms. On the eve of the talks, Clinton called from the vineyard to say that the United States would offer at least 20,000 annual visas to Cubans per year. Castro responded by pointing out that 160,000 Cubans were on the waiting list for visas because Washington had not honored the 1984 agreement. He wanted those Cubans added to the quota. At the end of the first day of talks, Clinton asked Salinas to reiterate to Castro that the United States would, in fact, allow a minimum of 20,000 Cubans to emigrate legally each year if Cuban authorities quickly blocked any more rafters from leaving. The U.S. negotiators would also want assurances that Cubans housed at Guantanamo could return to their homes if they wanted to, without fear of persecution. This demand irked Castro, and he began to backtrack on his earlier concession to discuss only migration issues. The United States now wanted him to sort out the mess they had created without giving Cuba a chance to put any of its issues on the negotiating table, he complained. Cuba wanted a far-reaching solution to the pressures that spurred illegal migration. That meant discussing the embargo. The time to do that was now particularly because Castro did not trust Clinton to follow through on his informal promise to discuss Cuba's concerns at a later date. The United States government had deceived him more than once, he told Salinas, making promises for a dialogue that were not kept. Castro wanted some type of link from these talks to broader ones in the future, to assure that they would, in fact, take place after a migration accord was signed. 
Shifting from interlocutor to mediator, Salinas assured Castro of Clinton's good faith. We were facing a kind of ladder with various rungs. The important thing was to take the first step, which meant sitting down and talking, even if only about the migration issue, Salinas advised. If there was goodwill, that would create the political conditions for a future dialogue about other important matters. As Salinas and Castro privately addressed this contentious problem, the issue played out publicly at the talks in New York City. We insist that there will be no solution as long as the embargo against Cuba, which is the cause of the whole problem, persists, declared the head of the Cuban negotiating team, former Foreign Minister Ricardo Alarcón. For the first few days, the Cubans continued to press this issue. But the American delegation, led by Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Skoll, steadfastly refused to put it on the agenda. Even on the migration issue, the two sides were far apart at first. Washington offered to simplify and expand the mechanism for legal migration, assuring that at least 20,000 Cubans a year would be admitted to the United States. The Cubans wanted the United States to take an additional 100,000 refugees immediately to clear up the backlog of people wanting to emigrate. The Cubans also insisted that Washington drop the new sanctions on travel and remittances that Clinton had imposed in August. The talks quickly stalled. Only the ongoing back-channel diplomacy enabled the two sides to find common ground. On September 5th, Castro called Salinas with an urgent message for Clinton. The Cubans wanted two final guarantees. First, that the new agreement state clearly that the punitive measures Clinton had announced on August 20th, termination of travel, telephone calls, and remittances, would be rescinded. And second, that Clinton make a verbal commitment to Salinas for future talks on lifting the embargo. Tell President Clinton to make a commitment with you, the President of Mexico, to sit down and talk about the economic consequences of the blockade. Castro told Salinas. I'm not asking him to put it in writing. I hope for Clinton's confirmation of this through you, to the effect that he's willing to discuss the economic causes as soon as possible. With that, Castro promised, the problem will be solved. Clinton responded that since the United States had always taken the position that the migration talks were limited to the issues of migration, the final agreement could not include language on the August 20th measures. Nevertheless, Clinton promised to lift the restrictions within 45 to 60 days and asked for Fidel to trust his word. On the guarantee for broader bilateral talks, Clinton finessed his answer. He would not make any public reference to such talks, but Salinas could inform Castro that, at some point in the future, the United States would be willing to discuss the broader bilateral relationship. Similar discussions had already been held in the past, Clinton noted, and this showed they could be repeated in the future. According to Salinas, Clinton wanted Fidel to understand this so that the negotiations in New York could end on a positive note. In the evening on September 6th, Castro called Salinas with his answer. I'm going to say this very slowly so you can write it down, as you told me you do, my answer to President Clinton's message, Fidel told him. And my answer is this. We accept what he proposes, and we trust him to keep his word. In New York, the two negotiating teams had spent a week trying to hammer out an accord, making little headway. On September 8th, with the formal negotiations at an impasse, Alarcón flew to Havana for consultations. 
After receiving the assurances Salinas had relayed from Clinton, Castro stepped back from Cuba's demand for a broader dialogue. When Alarcón returned to the bargaining table, he was ready to accept Washington's proposal and finalize the accord. The United States would no longer automatically accept Cubans who arrived on its shores in irregular ways. Those rescued at sea would be remanded to safe havens outside of the United States. The United States would now provide at minimum 20,000 legal visas to Cubans seeking to emigrate each year. Pursuant to Cuba's demands, the United States agreed to provide 6,000 additional visas to Cubans on the long waiting list. Cuba, in turn, would take effective measures in every way possible to prevent unsafe departures and allow those Cubans in Guantanamo who wanted to return home to do so. Both sides pledged cooperation in combating human trafficking and agreed to hold periodic consultations on implementation of the agreement. Although the blockade continues, and although a hostile policy toward us persists, the truth is that as of tonight, in one area, in one zone of the relationship between the two countries, we have achieved normalcy, Ricardo Alarcón declared in announcing the successful conclusion of the talks on September 9th. It has been demonstrated that Cuba and the United States can reach agreement. The immigration accord finally stanched the flow of the balseros. As Cuban police began patrolling the beaches again and confiscating rafts, the number of refugees fell dramatically. On September 10th, the Coast Guard rescued 1,004. On September 12th, only 283. On September 14th, just 17. And on September 18th, none. Wet Foot, Dry Foot Out of the turmoil and talks surrounding the Balsero crisis, came new momentum for changing U.S.-Cuba policy. As the immigration agreement was about to be signed in New York, an editorial appeared on the opinion page of the Washington Post entitled, The Embargo Must Go. Co-authored by the chairman of the Senate and House Foreign Relations Committees, Claiborne Pell and Lee Hamilton, the article called on Clinton to lift key parts of the embargo, starting with the travel ban, and open the door for a positive, rather than punitive, influence. On Cuba's future. We may need to move gradually on a new policy of engagement, they acknowledged, but we need to move. At the State Department, Richard Nuccio launched an effort to rescind the August 20th sanctions as part of a new package of initiatives that included allowing communication between U.S. and Cuban military officers, authorizing news bureaus in Havana, and exploring future cooperation on narcotics interdiction and environmental issues. To bolster his case in the face of resistance from opponents like Dennis Hayes and Michael Skoll, Nuccio had quietly encouraged Pell and Hamilton to publicly press for action. Once again, Assistant Secretary Watson sought to promote a direct dialogue. Can we fashion a strategy for dialogue with the regime that will advance our interests and gain international support without doing serious political damage in Florida? He asked Nuccio. It would show people we aren't petrified, it would pressure the regime, it would get international support if we do it right, and, heaven forbid, if it worked, it would contribute to a peaceful transition. The new debate revived the idea of a major policy pronouncement built around the calibrated response concept. With the Cuban rafters crisis under control, read an action memo drafted for National Security Advisor Anthony Lake in early October, the time may be ripe to consider a more proactive approach. 
The memorandum, a calibrated response to Cuban reforms, listed potential reciprocal actions Washington could consider. If Cuba legalized farmers' markets and small private businesses, for example, the United States would begin selling fertilizers and farm implements to the island. If Cuba allowed independent political parties and scheduled municipal elections, the United States would remove the embargo against sales of food and medicine. And if Castro held internationally supervised free national elections, the United States would lift the embargo entirely and normalize relations. A draft of a speech that spells this out in general terms is now under consideration to be given by the Secretary of State sometime in the near future, Lake was advised, probably after the elections. But the speech was never given. In the November 1994 midterm elections, the Republicans won control of both the House and the Senate. The ultra-conservative Jesse Helms, Republican of North Carolina, took over from Pell as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the ultra-conservative Dan Burton, Republican of Indiana, became chair of the House Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere Affairs. Helms and Burton soon began drafting new legislation, the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity, Libertad, Act, known simply as Helms-Burton, designed to globalize the trade embargo, further punish the Cuban economy, and block President Clinton from doing anything to improve relations with Havana. Facing a hostile Republican Congress and more concerned than ever about Florida's pivotal role in the 1996 election, Clinton decided against any new Cuba initiative. But he could not ignore the growing humanitarian crisis at Guantanamo. Some 21,000 intercepted rafters remained crammed into the makeshift detention center. Chief of the Atlantic Command, General John J. Sheehan, began sending alarming reports of mass frustration, violence, and even suicides among the Cuban inhabitants. Some of them were injecting diesel fuel into their veins, according to one report, in hopes of being transported to the United States for hospital care. If the base was not cleared soon, Sheehan warned, Guantanamo could erupt in rioting. Clinton's dilemma was stark. Holding the detainees indefinitely was proving to be impractical. Simply paroling them into the United States risked setting off another migration crisis, since the threat of indefinite detention would be hollow. Returning them to Cuba seemed politically impossible, and in any event, could not be done without the agreement of the Cuban government. At the NSC, Morton Halperin, who had advocated for the policy of detention in August, offered a possible solution. The only way we could bring these people into the United States, I said, is if we announce that from now on we send people back to Cuba. But that, too, would require Cuba's agreement. And opening a dialogue with Havana about Guantanamo was fraught with problems. Initial consultations on implementing the September 1994 accord had gone poorly. The Cubans found the U.S. negotiator, Cuban Affairs Coordinator Dennis Hayes, to be rigid and arrogant, the worst kind of diplomat, according to Ricardo Alarcón, who handled the migration talks for the Cuban side. Moreover, Castro was already angry that Clinton had reneged on his promise to rescind the August 20th sanctions. The 45 days have gone by, the 60 days have gone by, two and a half months have gone by, and there is no news, there are no signs. Castro complained to President Salinas, who, at Clinton's request, called Castro in late November to discuss the Guantanamo problem. I am taking the elections into account, that is why we have not insisted. 
Castro noted. But we have been waiting, trusting, naturally, in what was offered, what was promised. Nevertheless, senior U.S. officials began reaching out to the Cubans, using cocktail diplomacy to secretly talk about Guantanamo. In November 1994, Halperin met with Alarcón at the Georgetown mansion of Jennifer Caffritz and Lawton Phillips. At the end of dinner, the other guests retired from the dining room to drink expensive brandy, leaving Halperin and Alarcón at the table to quietly discuss how to empty Guantanamo of its increasingly volatile inhabitants. Under the guise of attending another dinner party at the Foxhall Drive home of Tom Cohen and Lisa Fuentes, Halperin continued the dialogue with Cuba's U.N. ambassador, Fernando Ramirez. Halperin came away from these conversations with the impression that the Cubans were willing to help Washington solve the problem. In the end, solving the Guantanamo problem fell to Peter Tarnoff. Since his key role in the secret dialogue during the Carter administration, Tarnoff had maintained close relations with Alarcón. During the 1980s, when Tarnoff served as president of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York and Alarcón was Cuba's vice minister of foreign relations, the two talked frequently by phone and met for martinis when Alarcón visited the U.N. Over the years, they established a trusting camaraderie unique in the history of relations between the United States and revolutionary Cuba. Peter, Alarcón fondly observed, was a good guy. On January 23, 1995, Tarnoff and Alarcón held their first secret negotiating session in New York. The clock was ticking on the refugee situation at Guantanamo, Tarnoff explained. The Clinton administration needed Cuba's support and understanding to find a solution. The options were complicated. Efforts to relocate the refugees to third countries, such as Panama and Belize, were bogged down. Bringing everyone to the United States could set off another exodus. Could Cuba help the United States solve this problem and avoid another migration crisis? To Tarnoff's surprise, Alarcón understood and accepted right away. On April 17th, the 34th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion, Tarnoff and Alarcón met again in the famous Oak Room Bar in the Plaza Hotel. They had intended to meet in the tea room, but Alarcón was not allowed to smoke his ever-present cigar there. Alarcón was in New York for another consultation on implementing the 1994 Migration Agreement and was scheduled to meet the following day with the U.S. delegation, led by Dennis Hayes. "'Be sure you don't tell Dennis Hayes about our talks,' Tarnoff cautioned Alarcón. Tarnoff outlined a U.S. proposal paroling Guantanamo detainees into the United States but also providing for the return to Cuba of new migrants intercepted at sea. Alarcón was intrigued, Tarnoff recalls. To finalize the details, Tarnoff and Alarcón met one more time in Toronto over the weekend of April 29th to 30th. Their meeting was ultra-secret, and White House officials took extensive steps to protect it from leaking. The National Security Agency was instructed to show any intercepts of Alarcón's phone calls only to the White House. At the NSC, Halperin drafted the negotiating instructions, which were then cleared by Deputy National Security Advisor Berger and the President himself. Halperin personally delivered the briefing book to Tarnoff to keep it secure. Nobody else but Secretary of State Warren Christopher knew where Tarnoff was going. As a cover story, he told his colleagues he and his wife were taking a short vacation. In Toronto, Tarnoff and Alarcón formalized an accord. 
The final language called for the humanitarian parole of Guantanamo detainees into the United States. To prevent future balseros, a section on safety of life at sea provided that the United States and Cuba would cooperate jointly on repatriating Cubans intercepted at sea or trying to cross onto the Guantanamo base. Both countries would ensure that no action is taken against those migrants returned to Cuba. The statement reaffirmed a joint commitment to take steps to prevent unsafe departures from Cuba which risk loss of human life and to oppose acts of violence associated with illegal immigration. Before the accord could be publicly announced, both Clinton and Castro had to sign off. Tarnoff and Alarcón worked out a plan to speak via phone at noon on May 1st, just to say, my guy's in, my guy's in, Halperin recalled. I did a memo to the president early Monday morning. He approved it. I called Peter. He had his call with Alarcón. Peter called back and said, we are both in. The joint statement with the Republic of Cuba on normalization of migration was announced the next day. The new migration accord ended the 30-year U.S. policy of encouraging illegal flight from Cuba. Cuban refugees could still win permanent resident status under the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act, but only if they actually reached the United States. Those intercepted at sea would go back to Cuba. On the basis of this distinction, the new policy came to be known as wet-foot-dry-foot. Predictably, the new agreement generated a storm of protest from the right, much of it focused on the secrecy of the negotiations and the implication that the talks portended a new era of cooperation between Washington and Havana. The new policy meant that the United States will now be co-wardens of Castro's police state, CANF's Jorge Mascanosa declared. Within days, the anti-Castro lobby was organizing angry protests in the streets of Miami's Little Havana and in front of the White House gates. In damage control mode, Tarnoff met privately with Representatives Burton Torricelli, Ileana Ros-Latinen, Democrat of Florida, Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, and Peter Deutsch, Democrat of Florida. He assured them that the Clinton administration still adhered to the Cuban Democracy Act, and even shared the overall objectives of the draft Helms-Burton legislation. Secrecy had been necessary in the talks, he said, because if word got out on the agreement, there could have been mass movements of people on water or over land to GTMO, Guantanamo, to beat the deadline. Their meeting on May 10th did nothing to mollify the anti-Castro legislators. On May 18th, Tarnoff was hauled before Burton's subcommittee forced to testify under oath, a procedure rarely invoked with government officials, and publicly harangued for secretly talking to the enemy. Representative Ross Latinen announced that she had 123 questions, and then began asking them. What did President Clinton know about the negotiations? Was there any promise given by the United States concerning relaxation of sanctions against Castro? Will the Clinton administration consider a naval blockade of Cuba if Castro violates this accord? Representative Menendez attacked the very concept of secret talks. Secret negotiations between the Castro dictatorship and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger under a Republican administration were wrong in 1974, he declared, and those between the Castro dictatorship and Peter Tarnoff under a Democratic administration are wrong in 1995.
The Republican legislators also launched a McCarthy-like attack on Tarnoff's colleague, Morton Halperin. According to Burton, Halperin supported the views of the leftist groups around the world. Ross Latinen demanded to know, did Morton Halperin initiate the idea of holding secret talks? To dampen opposition to the new policy, Clinton made Halperin the sacrificial lamb. Sandy Berger called him and broke the news. I got canned, Halperin recalled. The Miami exiles were very upset that they hadn't been consulted in advance on the accord, and as part of reaching an understanding with the White House, I would no longer be working on Cuba policy. A veteran voice for a rational policy was gone. A shake-up also occurred at the Department of State. Angry at being kept in the dark about Tarnoff's secret negotiations, Cuban Affairs Coordinator Dennis Hayes demanded to be reassigned. He was appointed ambassador to Suriname, but, in 2000, left the State Department to work for Mascanosa as head of CANF's Washington office. His colleague and ally, Deputy Assistant Secretary Michael Skoll, also resigned his position in protest. A New Policy Bureaucracy As the political storm over the new accord subsided, the administration took the opportunity to restructure the Cuba policy-making process. On May 25th, the White House announced that Richard Nuccio had been appointed Special Advisor to the President and Secretary of State for Cuba. The position was a bureaucratic hybrid. Nuccio moved to a new office in the old Executive Office building adjacent to the West Wing, but technically remained a State Department appointee, answering both to Undersecretary Tarnoff and Deputy National Security Advisor Berger. As Cuba czar, Nuccio would oversee new policy initiatives and chair a new interagency task force on Cuba, responsible for implementation of all aspects of our Cuba policy. Nuccio wanted a policy that would be more agile and creative, he told task force members when they first met on June 9th. I hope that we can demonstrate our ability to manage effectively what we currently do so that we can then move forward aggressively to promote a peaceful democratic transition in Cuba. Throughout the summer of 1995, the task force worked to formulate a package of proposals for presidential consideration. These included establishing U.S. news bureaus in Havana, permitting U.S. non-governmental organizations, NGOs, to work in Cuba, authorizing U.S. aid funding to promote democracy, and easing restrictions on Cuban-American travel, as well as educational, religious, and academic travel. There was also a series of close-hold initiatives, as Nuccio reported to Tarnoff and Berger, things we could, should be doing on Cuba policy that we cannot discuss publicly for a variety of reasons. Arranging for military-to-military -military contacts between the Cuban and U.S. armed forces was one creative but sensitive policy proposal. Counter-narcotics collaboration was another. The task force considered a modest initiative to move beyond the existing cooperation on a case-by-case -case basis to a negotiated agreement that would involve DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, and Coast Guard, Nuccio reported. In addition, the task force began to examine more significant initiatives, offerings as Nuccio remembered them, that could be put on the table if Cuba undertook major reforms. One was the return of Guantanamo, which would remove the imperial symbol of U.S. encroachment on Cuba sovereignty. Another was getting Cuba off the terrorism list. Cuba was designated by the Department of State as a state sponsor of terrorism in 1982 because of Havana's support for the revolutionaries in Central America. 
There was no longer any real reason for Cuba's designation, but the politics of removing Cuba from the list was complicated, Nuccio understood. He tasked State Department official Robert Gelbard to do a re-examination of why Cuba is on the terrorist list. Looking back, Nuccio believed there were promising opportunities for new initiatives, especially with Tarnoff in charge of Cuba policy at the State Department. Tarnoff characterized his goal as to move the relationship along piece by piece, but he understood real change would be an uphill battle. Although Clinton had led Castro to believe that the United States would discuss the embargo after the migration issue was settled, there was no energy in the administration to improve relations, Tarnoff recalled. Secretary of State Christopher wouldn't put Cuba in the top 20 issues of importance, and Clinton wouldn't put it in the top 50. For Cuba policy, he said, there was no rabbi on the issue to make it a priority. Military-to-military -military contacts, the fence line talks. Little by little, however, relations did begin to change in unexpected places. The 1994 rafters crisis produced a notable improvement in U.S.-Cuban military cooperation at Guantanamo Bay Naval Station. Under the 1903 Platt Amendment, the United States began leasing the 45-square-mile base, paying Cuba a nominal rent, $4,085 annually. A 1934 treaty gave the United States basing rights in perpetuity. With the advent of the revolution, Fidel Castro demanded the United States return the base to Cuba. He stopped cashing the rent checks, collecting them in a drawer in his desk to show visitors. Guantanamo became a potential and perpetual flashpoint. In February 1964, Castro shut off the water supply in retaliation for the U.S. seizure of 38 Cuban fishermen allegedly in U.S. waters. Johnson retaliated by cutting off the flow of dollars to Cuba by firing most of the base's 3,000 Cuban employees. While vowing that Cubans would fight to the last man defending their homeland, Castro moved to de-escalate the crisis by assuring Washington that he would not initiate hostilities. Although Cuba wanted Guantanamo returned, it was not an urgent question, he noted, after the fishermen had been released and could take years to be resolved. Nevertheless, the risk of inadvertent conflict remained high. U.S. sentries reported that Cubans threw stones at them. Cuban sentries claimed that U.S. forces sometimes fired at them, killing or wounding several Cubans. In 1964, Castro took one of the first steps to reduce tensions at the base by ordering Cuban troops back from the base perimeter. Thereafter, relations between the U.S. and Cuban military units facing each other settled into wary routine. The landmines on both sides of the fence separating the base from Cuban territory proved deadly dangerous to soldiers and civilians from both countries. In 1994, Marine Corps General John Sheehan, director of plans and policy and later commander of the Atlantic Fleet, decided to do something about it. Under the framework of safety, I made the offer to the Cuban Border Guard commander to exchange information on minefield locations and agreed to a protocol for assisting people who might be caught in an active minefield, said Sheehan, recalling his first confidence-building measure to reduce tensions at Guantanamo during the rafters crisis. As an act of good faith, Sheehan provided the charts of the minefields on the U.S. side of the fence. His gesture prompted the local commander of the Cuban border guard to request a face-to-face -face meeting. Sheehan agreed. For an initial meeting, the two sides set up a tent on the yellow line, separating the base from Cuban territory. 
So began regularly scheduled monthly consultations, dubbed the Fence Line Talks, between the U.S. and Cuban local commanders, talks that continued after the migration crisis ended and evolved into one of the few channels for routine communication on crisis prevention. The agenda for the talks usually centered on information sharing about upcoming military maneuvers, troop movement around the base, migration issues, and responses to natural disasters, anything that could lead to potential misunderstanding and conflict. The rule of thumb was no surprises, recalled General Sheehan, who headed the U.S. delegation in a half-dozen of the early fence-line talks. For the U.S. military, dialogue with its Cuban counterpart made simple common sense. The Cold War was over, and the U.S. intelligence community had concluded that the debilitated Cuban military no longer represented a serious threat to the United States. There was very much a sense among the military after the Cold War that the Cuban issue was literally obsolete and that policy needed to be changed, remembers Alberto Cole, who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense from 1990 to 1993. Officers who dealt with Cuba wanted some form of engagement, even though the U.S. political leadership remained cautious. Given the sensitivities in Washington to any form of dialogue with Cuba, Sheehan and his colleagues understood the political risks of proceeding with the fence line talks. But the payoff was worth it, according to Sheehan, because the potential of armed soldiers within rock-throwing range of each other making a mistake that could spiral out of control was very high. In addition, he told the authors, I felt strongly that since the public rhetoric between the U.S. and Cuba was so political and ideologically charged, it was absolutely essential that a line of military-to-military -military communications should be opened as a potential vehicle for escalation management should it be required. This approach paid off, not only lowering tensions, but essentially normalizing relations in a military zone of potential conflict. The U.S. and local Cuban commands established a hotline for emergencies and began conducting joint firefighting and hurricane evacuation exercises. In 1996, President Clinton ordered that the U.S. minefield surrounding the base be dismantled, and over the next few years, both sides withdrew their tanks and artillery. In 1999, the Clinton administration informed Cuba that it was contemplating using Guantanamo as a center for refugees from Kosovo. Although Cuba opposed the U.S. military role in the former Yugoslavia, it did not object and even offered medical assistance to the refugees if needed. In 2002, when President Bush ordered that Guantanamo be used as a detention center for prisoners in the war on terrorism, Cuba again lodged no complaint. Raul Castro even told a reporter that if an al-Qaeda prisoner escaped, he'll be caught and returned through the front doors of the U.S. base. In 1994, the events concerning the Cuban and Haitian rafters created a situation that obliged us to cooperate, Raul Castro explained, looking back at how military-to-military -military relations had developed. Since then, there has been absolute calm here, appreciated by both countries. There is an atmosphere of cooperation, of mutual respect and collaboration. Reflecting on what the fence line talks had achieved, Sheehan agreed. By opening a discussion with the FAR, Revolutionary Armed Forces, an opportunity was created that allowed both sides to deal with practical issues that affected real people. Moreover, there has also not been a serious fence-line incident in over 25 years, and we have not lost a single American Marine.
Cubans saw the positive relations at Guantanamo as a model for U.S.-Cuban relations generally. This minimum cooperation that exists here shows that we can do the same in many other things, according to Raul Castro. I believe that what has been achieved here, modestly, among persons who follow orders issued from above, has been to act rationally and with common sense. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Brothers to the Rescue, a Back-Channel Failure On October 3, 1995, more than a year after Bill Clinton secretly promised Fidel Castro that he would rescind his August 1994 sanctions in 45 to 60 days, the President finally approved the restoration of Cuban-American remittances and eased travel restrictions. It had taken three months to get the announcement cleared through the foreign policy bureaucracy. The rollout must be well planned, a White House decision memorandum warned Clinton, so that this action is, to the maximum extent, seen for what it is, reasonable humanitarian changes to the August 1994 controls plus pro-democracy moves, not anti-embargo or pro-Castro. Clinton announced the package of new initiatives three days later in a speech to the conservative NGO Freedom House. While promising to tighten the enforcement of our embargo to keep the pressure for reform on, the president also sought to promote the free flow of ideas by licensing U.S. news bureaus in Havana, liberalizing religious and academic travel, granting a general license for Cuban Americans to visit once a year, and lifting the ban on family remittances, imposed during the Balsero crisis. Clinton also licensed NGO civic projects in Cuba to promote peaceful change and protect human rights, and he announced that the first grant would go to Freedom House, $500,000 to purchase computer equipment, copiers, and fax machines for Cuban dissidents. As part of its rollout strategy, the administration worked overtime to assure the exile community and congressional Republicans that the new measures did not portend any opening to Cuba. U.S. policy, Richard Nuccio stated publicly, was to maintain the existing embargo, the most comprehensive we have toward any country. Only if the Cubans took major steps toward democracy would the United States respond appropriately, he said. Big moves, big response. As Nuccio assured the hardliners, we don't have any secret negotiations going on. Nevertheless, within an hour of Clinton's announcement, Senate Majority Leader and Republican presidential hopeful Robert Dole declared that all signs point to normalization and secret negotiations with Castro. The senator then announced that he would move the Helms-Burton legislation onto the Senate floor for immediate consideration. The bill, already passed by the House in September, prohibited U.S. assistance to Cuba until the advent of democracy and imposed sanctions against foreign countries and corporations that did business on the island. Among its many punitive measures, Helms-Burton allowed U.S. citizens to sue foreign corporations that trafficked in properties expropriated from wealthy Cubans or Americans following the revolution. Executives from these corporations would be denied visas to enter the United States. It's time to tighten the screws, Senator Helms announced when he first presented the bill to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His co-sponsor, Congressman Burton, predicted that passage would be the last nail in Castro's coffin. Helms-Burton became a bitter battleground between the executive and the legislative branches. Not only did the bill attack the president's constitutional authority to conduct foreign policy, 
according to a White House legislative strategy memorandum for Clinton, Helms-Burton actually damages the prospects of a democratic transition in Cuba and could conflict with broader U.S. interests, including compliance with major international trade agreements and our commitment to respect international law. The administration forcefully opposed the extraterritorial provisions of the bill, particularly Title III, allowing lawsuits against third-country investors using expropriated properties in Cuba. Secretary of State Christopher threatened a presidential veto. As the Helms-Burton legislation dominated public debate on Cuba policy in the latter half of 1995, a veritable Greek tragedy played out in the skies over Cuba's coast, a tragedy set in motion by repeated incursions into Cuban airspace by a group of Cuban-American pilots known as Brothers to the Rescue, BTTR. Since 1991, the Brothers had been flying search missions for distressed Cuban rafters, notifying the U.S. Coast Guard whenever a small boat or raft needed rescue. But despite its humanitarian mission, BTTR's founder and director, Bay of Pigs veteran Jose Basulto, had a history of anti-Castro violence. In August 1962, he had positioned a boat with a 20-millimeter cannon on its bow just off the coast of Havana and shelled the Hornedo de Rosita Hotel, where he and his co-conspirators believed Castro would be dining. I was trained as a terrorist by the United States in the use of violence to attain goals, said Basulto, but he claimed to have converted to nonviolence. When I was young, my Hollywood hero was John Wayne. Now I'm like Luke Skywalker. I believe the Force is with us. When the September 1994 Immigration Accord ended the flow of rafters in the Florida Strait, Basulto shifted BTTR's mission from rescue to provocation. They started to redefine their mission as one of not helping innocent people at risk for their lives, but to carry out a political agenda of harassing and threatening the Cuban government by overflights, dropping leaflets into Cuba, Nuccio explained. On November 10, 1994, Basulto dropped Brothers to the Rescue bumper stickers over the Cuban countryside. Repeatedly over the next eight months, BTTR planes violated Cuban airspace. Their most provocative act in 1995 came on July 13, when Basulto's Cessna Skymaster buzzed Havana, raining down thousands of religious medallions and leaflets reading, Brothers, not Comrades, along the Malecon, Havana's broad seaside avenue. We are proud of what we did, Basulto exalted after landing back in Miami, where footage of the mission taken by an NBC cameraman on the plane aired on local TV stations. We want confrontation, Basulto declared. His bold incursion served as a message to the Cuban people, he boasted. The regime is not invulnerable. These overflights constituted a direct challenge to Cuba's national security and a flagrant affront to its sovereignty. It was so humiliating, Castro later told Time magazine. The U.S. would not have tolerated it if Washington's airspace had been violated by small airplanes. Castro and his generals had long memories of the early years of the revolution when little planes would take off from Florida and drop incendiary devices over the Cuban countryside as part of the CIA's covert war of sabotage. President Eisenhower posed the obvious question during an NSC discussion of the exile flights, wondering why the Cubans don't just shoot the planes down. Given that dark history, Cuban officials made it clear to the Clinton administration that the incursions could not and would not be tolerated. As BTTR flights kept coming, 
the Cuban government used every channel of communication it could find, formal and informal, public and private, direct and through intermediaries, to press the U.S. government to clip Basulto's wings. Officially, the Cubans filed one diplomatic protest after another. Following the July 13th incursion, their note contained a stern warning. Cuban security forces had a firm determination to adopt whatever positions are necessary to avoid acts of provocation, and any boat from abroad can be sunk and any airplane downed. The Cuban Civil Aeronautics Institute sent a series of reports to the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, along with evidence, copies of video radar and flight plans it had accumulated on the violations of Cuban airspace. I plead that you take actions necessary to avoid that these events repeat themselves, a Cuban official wrote to FAA Administrator David Hinson in August, as Basulto announced he was organizing another flight for early September. Given the clear and present danger of an international incident, the FAA's response seemed desultory at best and criminally negligent at worst. In late August, FAA officers met with Alfonso Fraga Perez, chief of the Cuban Interests Section in Washington, to review Cuba's complaint. The agency also issued a notice of proposed certificate action to suspend Basulto's piloting license for 120 days for violating federal aviation regulations by flying a Cessna 337 through Cuban airspace and over Havana, a notice that did not, in practice, prevent him from actually flying. In Miami, FAA officials met face-to-face -face with Basulto before and after the July 13th incursion to warn him to stay away from Cuba. His actions made it clear that he would not comply. In August, Nuccio flew to Miami twice to meet with local FAA, FBI, Coast Guard, and Customs officials to press them to take quick enforcement action against Basulto and his pilots. Through diplomatic notes to Cuba, the State Department transmitted multiple FAA requests for any evidence and identifying data that could advance the agency's slow-moving investigation. State officials also used the notes to request that the Cuban government exercise the utmost discretion and restraint and avoid the use of excessive force in dealing with the incursions. It was clear to everyone that we were playing with fire and that we had a hose in our hand and refused to use it, recalled Fulton Armstrong, a CIA analyst detailed to the NSC in mid-1995 to work on Cuba. As the bureaucracy dithered, BTTR and Basulto continued their provocations. Between August 1995 and February 1996, the Cuba government filed four more diplomatic notes protesting violations of its airspace, only to have the FAA request additional evidence for its plotting investigation. Emboldened by his seeming impunity, on January 13, 1996, Basulto again flew his planes over Havana, this time dropping a half a million leaflets exhorting the Cuban people to change things now. His ability to penetrate Cuban airspace, Basulto bragged to Radio Marti back in Miami, demonstrated that Castro isn't impenetrable, that many things are within our reach to be done. Citizen Intermediaries In Cuba, those who foresaw the coming confrontation resorted to back-channel diplomacy to reach the highest levels of the U.S. government. Ricardo Alarcón placed a series of secret phone calls to his friend and fellow negotiator Peter Tarnoff, beseeching him to take action. You say you want an accommodation, but you are letting this crap with the brothers to the rescue continue, as one White House official paraphrased Alarcón's angry message. 
In response, Tarnoff brought the issue of how to ground the flights before the interagency task force on Cuba. He also placed a call directly to Secretary of Transportation Federico Peña in an effort to light a fire under the bureaucracy. Tarnoff, who had private telephone numbers for Alarcón at his house, office, and even in the hospital room where his wife was convalescing, called to urge patience and assure him, we are trying. Impatient, Alarcón turned to two intermediaries, Saul Landau and Scott Armstrong. Landau, a documentary filmmaker, had made two major movies about Fidel, written widely on U.S. policy, and traveled frequently to the island. Armstrong, a former journalist at the Washington Post, also had a long-standing interest in U.S.-Cuban relations. During the fall of 1994, they had played the role of citizen emissaries, arranging Mort Halperin's secret dinner party meetings with Cuban officials to discuss Cuban refugees at Guantanamo. Now, Landau and Armstrong were in Havana on a project to promote a baseball game between Cuban players and American major leaguers. Alarcón gave them a dire warning to take back to the White House. The gravest consequences would occur on the next BTTR flight into Cuban airspace. Upon their return to Washington, Landau and Armstrong contacted Halperin, who, although he was no longer the lead person on Cuba, was still on the NSC staff. We saw Mort, Landau said, and told him that the Cubans really meant business on this one, that the administration couldn't fuck off any more. Landau remembers. He said he would take care of it. Using White House stationery for maximum authority, Halperin wrote to the head of the FAA, David Hinson, demanding that he revoke the licenses of Basulto and his BTTR pilots on the basis of their repeatedly filing false flight plans. Such pressure from the White House, Halperin believed, erroneously as it turned out, would curtail the flights. Confident the issue had been resolved, Halperin's office asked Armstrong to transmit that message to Havana, which he did through the new head of the Cuban Interests Section, Fernando Ramirez. In fact, the issue was not resolved. The FAA office in Miami determined that Basulto could not be grounded until they had fully completed an enforcement investigative report. It refused to issue an emergency cease-and-desist order or take any steps beyond again warning Basulto not to violate Cuban airspace. The Cuban military also tried to send a warning through private channels. At the Ministry of the Revolutionary Armed Forces, MINFAR, on February 8, 1996, a delegation of retired U.S. officers organized by the Center for Defense Information received a briefing on the BTTR overflights by Cuban Air Force Brigadier General Arnaldo Tamayo Mendez. They have come here, they have violated our airspace, dropping leaflets and propaganda which is a flagrant violation of our sovereignty, General Tamayo told the delegation, which included retired Rear Admiral Eugene Carroll and former U.S. Ambassador to El Salvador Robert White. We would like to see these acts of piracy against our country stopped, Tamayo continued. Cuba had the capability to bring them down at any moment. We haven't done so precisely because we do not want to overheat the situation, Tamayo explained, because then, of course, Cuba will be presented as a culprit, and the violators and those who stimulate these acts of piracy against us will get off scot-free. Privately, General Tamayo was even more blunt. In a side conversation with Ambassador White and Admiral Carroll, he made an extraordinary revelation. Castro had given a standing order to the Air Force to take all necessary steps to prevent another violation of Cuban airspace. 
Are you going to wait until they drop a bomb on me before you take action? Castro had asked his commanders in frustration. What would be the reaction of your military if we shot down one of those planes? Tamayo asked the visiting Americans, who were stunned by the question. It was a calculated warning, Ambassador White recalled. We were meant to take away the very clear impression that the Cubans had reached the limit of their tolerance. Back in Washington, the delegation arranged debriefings at both the Defense Intelligence Agency and the State Department. The Cubans were very upset about these overflights, Ambassador White related. There was a sense they might take some kind of action. This did not seem to be news to U.S. officials. The Richardson Back Channel The highest-level effort at secret diplomacy was undertaken by Fidel Castro himself. The Cuban leader seized the opportunity of a January 1996 visit by Bill Richardson to propose an unusual quid pro quo, political prisoners in exchange for grounding Basulto. Then a relatively unknown congressman from New Mexico with close ties to President Clinton, Richardson had developed a reputation for humanitarian missions abroad. In July 1995, he succeeded in talking Saddam Hussein into turning over two Americans who had crossed into Iraq from Kuwait and were being held on suspicion of espionage. Now he wanted to burnish his diplomatic credentials by getting political prisoners released from Cuba. With the assistance of Peter Bourne, a Castro biographer and former Carter White House official, Richardson arranged to meet Castro at a reception during the U.N. General Assembly meeting in late October of 1995. Castro was impressed with Richardson's Spanish, folksy charm, and connection to the White House. Fidel invited him to visit Havana. Richardson arrived in Cuba on January 17, 1996, only four days after Basulto's brazen airdrop of leaflets over Havana. The congressman carried a list of ten political prisoners he hoped Castro would release. He found Castro to be a personable guy, engaging and humorous. Fidel gave Richardson the red carpet treatment, taking him to a baseball game, holding a lengthy nighttime meeting to discuss U.S.-Cuban relations, and giving him a box of premium Cuban cigars as a gift for President Clinton. When Richardson requested the release of the prisoners, Castro said his top priority at that moment was the Brothers to the Rescue overflights, according to Peter Bourne, who was briefed on the talks after Richardson returned. If Richardson was as close to the President as he claimed, Castro said, he should go back to Washington and get an assurance from Clinton that the flights would be stopped. Then Richardson could come back in a month and two political prisoners would be released to him. In a private memo to Richardson based on later conversations with Cuban officials, Bourne reported that, from their perspective, the deal was a clear quid pro quo. When Richardson returned to Washington on January 20th, he contacted the White House. I raised this with the President. Richardson told Bourne, and he picked up the phone and called Secretary of Transportation Federico Peña and said that he was very concerned about these flights and that they should be stopped. This is the message that the Cubans heard when Richardson returned to Havana on February 9th to ferry three prisoners back to the United States. Fidel felt you were telling him you brought Clinton's promise that he would not allow any further flights, Bourne reported to Richardson after speaking with Castro's aides. They say Fidel told you, I am not releasing these prisoners for you, I am releasing them for President Clinton. Castro then told his aides that he had a clear commitment from one head of state to another that the flights would be stopped.
As he returned to Florida with the released prisoners, Richardson told CNN reporters that Castro had asked for nothing in exchange. Two years later, when a reporter for The New Yorker asked him about a quid pro quo, Richardson rejected it as a total fiction, fantasy. Revisiting this episode in 2011, however, Richardson acknowledged that he had in fact approached the White House about BTTR flights, although he could not recall to whom he had spoken. The Cubans never wavered in their conviction that, as Fidel Castro told the CBS news anchor Dan Rather, they had received assurances from the highest levels of the U.S. government that BTTR would cease its incursions. Years later, after stepping down from power, Castro recalled that Richardson had very earnestly told me, to the best of my recollection, the following, That will not be happening again. The President has ordered those flights stopped. When the BTTR once again violated Cuban airspace only two weeks later, Bourne reported, Castro was outraged and fuming over Clinton's behavior, which, he felt, showed his word meant nothing. Countdown to Tragedy In the weeks, days, and hours before the final confrontation in the skies off Cuba's coast, some U.S. officials sensed a calamity was coming. In January, U.S. military radar picked up evidence that the Cuban Air Force was practicing intercepting and firing on slow-moving aircraft. Alarmed State Department officials peppered the FAA with requests for action. State is increasingly concerned about Cuban reactions to these flagrant violations, wrote Cecilia Capistani, an official at the FAA's International Aviation Division, on January 22, 1996. They are also asking from the FAA, what is this agency doing to prevent, deter these actions? Worst-case scenario is that one of these days the Cubans will shoot down one of these planes, and the FAA better have all its ducks in a row. At the White House on the evening of February 23rd, Richard Nuccio received an alert that BTTR would be flying the next day. Alarmed, he fired off an urgent email to Deputy National Security Advisor Sandy Berger. Previous overflights by José Basulto of the Brothers have been met with restraint by Cuban authorities. Tensions are sufficiently high within Cuba, however, that we fear this may finally tip the Cubans toward an attempt to shoot down or force down the plane, Nuccio warned. After conferring with his NSC colleague Robert Malley, Nuccio decided to instruct FAA officials in Miami to halt the flight on the basis of Basulto's past violations. To his surprise, they refused. They would agree only to warn Basulto again about violating Cuban airspace. Nuccio then asked the State Department to instruct Joseph Sullivan, chief of the U.S. Interests Section in Havana, to alert the Cuban government and urge all possible restraint if any provocations occur. Word came back from Sullivan that any approach by him would be counterproductive. These guys are in such a miserable, piss-angry mood, Sullivan replied by secure telephone, that it may actually make things worse. There would be one other opportunity to alert the Cubans. By coincidence, that very evening, Nuccio was scheduled to attend the performance of Cuba's Ballet Folklorico, a major cultural event at George Washington University's Listener Auditorium made possible by Clinton's People to People initiative. Aware that the new chief of the Cuban Interests Section, Fernando Ramirez, would also be attending, Nuccio decided the ballet would be a perfect cover for the two to meet, casually, for the first time. Peter Tarnoff had forbidden Nuccio to meet officially with Cuban diplomats, 
but an informal, accidental introduction could be useful in a future crisis. I really just wanted to open a dialogue with Ramirez, Nuccio told the authors. I visualized someday having to be on the phone saying harsh things to this guy, and I wanted him to know something about me. As the troupe danced its way through the rich history of Cuban music, Nuccio found himself in a state of anxiety over the BTTR flights. But when the chance came to meet Ramirez at the post-performance reception, the two engaged in only perfunctory small talk. The most substantive exchange came as Ramirez commented on the difficult state of U.S.-Cuban relations. Nuccio's Mexican-born wife, Angelina, then reminded him of a famous saying in her country, So far from God, so close to the United States. Yes, that's it, Ramirez replied. You understand us exactly. As the pleasantries concluded, Nuccio faced a critical decision, whether to warn the Cuban official about the impending incursion. I recall looking at Ramirez as he moved toward the door and fighting with my impulse to pull him aside, Nuccio later wrote in an unpublished memoir. I struggled with a gut instinct to appeal to the Cubans to exercise restraint in reacting to the flight and the worry that my remark would be misinterpreted if something tragic did occur. The security of silence prevailed. As Ramirez exited, I turned back to the bar and said nothing. At 1.15 p.m. the next day, Basulto's plane took off from Opalaca Airport in Miami, accompanied by two other BTTR Cessnas. They filed a false flight plan with the FAA to patrol off the northern coast of Cuba in search of rafters. In reality, their mission was to again penetrate Cuban airspace as an act of solidarity with a Cuban dissident group called Concilio Cubano. In a crackdown on opponents, Castro's police had arrested dozens of Concilio members a few days before. Good afternoon, Havana Center, Basulto radioed Cuban flight controllers as the planes headed toward the island. A cordial greeting from Brothers to the Rescue and its president, Jose Basulto. The Cuban controllers immediately warned him not to cross into their airspace. I inform you that the zone north of Havana is active. You run danger by penetrating that side of North 24. We are ready to do it, Basulto responded with bravado. It is our right as free Cubans. Acting on Castro's standing orders to prevent another penetration of Cuban airspace, two MiG-29 jets scrambled from their base at San Antonio de los Paños. The Cuban pilots followed none of the international protocols for warning, intercepting, and escorting unarmed civilian planes. Instead, at 3.19 p.m., a heat-seeking missile obliterated the first BTTR Cessna. At 3.26, the second was shot down. The attack took the lives of four young Cuban-Americans, Mario de la Peña, Armando Alejandre, Carlos Costa, and Pablo Morales. Only Basulto and his three crew members escaped back to Miami. In Washington, the shootdown generated a full-scale crisis. Within minutes, Nuccio was called into Sandy Berger's office and tasked to draw up tough options, including military responses, for President Clinton's consideration. Nuccio cautioned against an overreaction. BTTR had been playing with fire, he told Berger. They got exactly what they were hoping to produce. If we respond militarily, they will have succeeded in producing the crisis they've been looking for. But the blatantly provocative nature of the BTTR flights no longer mattered. The United States, Berger told him, could simply not stand by and let Castro kill American citizens. 
When President Clinton convened his top national security team in the White House cabinet room two days later, he weighed the option of a surgical airstrike or cruise missile attack on Cuba's MiG base. But the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Chalikasvili, talked him out of it. Instead, Clinton ordered that a private warning be sent to Castro. The next such action would meet a military response directly from the United States. In addition, Clinton ordered a new ban on commercial flights between Cuba and the United States, restricted Cuban diplomats from traveling outside of their posts in New York and Washington, expanded Radio Marti's broadcast radius into Cuba, and authorized compensation for the families of the four BTTR victims from frozen Cuban bank accounts. More importantly, the President declared that he would move promptly to reach an agreement with Congress to pass the Helms-Burton legislation. The shootdown left the Clinton administration politically naked, Helms' top aide, Dan Fisk, observed. Emboldened and empowered, anti-Castro forces in the Congress added a dramatic new clause to the bill, the codification of the embargo into law. No longer would it be a presidential prerogative to lift sanctions against Cuba. Now it would take majority votes in Congress. The Clinton team, led by political adviser George Stephanopoulos, put up no objections. The president has to sign the bill, he told National Security Advisor Anthony Lake and Chief of Staff Leon Panetta in a strategy meeting of senior staff. They agreed. Nuccio tried to object to this wholesale capitulation on Helms-Burton, only to be overruled. Forget it, Tarnoff told him. The decision's been made. It's over. That verdict was about more than just Helms-Burton, Nuccio knew. He was saying that our gambit to improve relations was over. Done. Shortly thereafter, Nuccio stepped down as White House Special Advisor on Cuba. On March 12, 1996, with the families of the four BTTR pilots standing behind him, President Clinton signed the Helms-Burton Bill into law as a powerful, unified message to Havana. He then handed the pen to Jorge Mascanosa as a souvenir. With that, Clinton surrendered his presidential authority to make policy toward Cuba and the authority of the presidents who would succeed him. Clinton understood what he had done. He felt backed into a policy of proven failure, he lamented to a confidant in the Oval Office, closing off political engagement toward a peaceful transition in Cuba for the sake of electoral expediency. Supporting the bill was good electioneer politics in Florida, Clinton conceded in his autobiography, but it undermined whatever chance I might have had, if I won a second term, to lift the embargo in return for positive changes within Cuba. Clinton's Second Term Changing the Paradigm The passage of Helms-Burton, the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Libertad Act, left Clinton's Cuba policy in shambles. By writing the embargo into law, the legislation took away most of the discretion on Cuba policy that presidents had enjoyed since Kennedy first imposed the full embargo in 1962. With the president prohibited by law from lifting sanctions piecemeal in response to Cuban actions, the core premise of Clinton's policy of calibrated response was vitiated. Quid pro quo was no longer a viable strategy because Washington could offer no quids for Cuban quos. That was precisely Helms's intention. He meant the law to be, in his words, Clinton-proof. The new law applied to Cuba a standard we set for no other nation 
and seriously limited what any administration could do to prepare for the day when Castro finally departs the scene, wrote Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in her memoir. We had no plan for dealing with the day after. Faced with the constraints of the law, Sandy Berger, newly promoted to National Security Advisor, turned to his NSC staff to formulate options for a new approach. After the brothers were shot down, we regrouped, Berger told the authors. We had to be as creative as we could because we were operating within a very difficult set of political constraints. After Brothers to the Rescue, Berger asked me for a road map to get us out of shoot-down gulch, said Fulton Armstrong, who had served with J. Taylor at the U.S. Interests Section in Havana and joined the NSC staff in 1995. We were in a box after Helms-Burton and needed to poke holes in it. Armstrong crafted an approach designed to change the paradigm by moving away from the quid pro quo strategy that had been at the heart of negotiations with Cuba ever since Henry Kissinger's initiative. Instead, Washington would take unilateral actions based on national interests and based on the Cuban people rather than the old man, Armstrong said, referring to Castro. In addition to strengthening social and cultural ties between the Cuban and U.S. people, Armstrong also envisioned engaging the Cuban government to build on areas of mutual interest, such as narcotics interdiction and counterterrorism. To succeed, this strategy had to abandon the goal of regime change. Who was going to let someone into their house if they think you were going to try to burn it down? Armstrong asked pointedly. Moreover, the chances of U.S. policy unseating Fidel were nil. Actuarial tables, not embargo measures, give us the best read as to how long he will remain in power, Armstrong wrote in a draft memo laying out his new policy proposals. But negotiations with the Cuban government would come at the end of the process, not the beginning. Most successful advances were not things that were negotiated, but things that came about through a long dance of steps, from which positive things happen, Armstrong explained. As a career CIA analyst, it galled Armstrong that the politics of the Cuba issue constantly got in the way of a policy that served the national interest, but he recognized the reality for what it was. The quid pro quo approach is impossible because of the politics on both sides. Hardliners would always work to block the quid and quos, derailing a gradual process. This new approach of positive parallel steps was not an easy sell, especially in an election year. When Armstrong presented his ideas in a meeting of senior NSC staff, his colleagues objected that Miami would be apoplectic if the president took any new initiative on Cuba. They shot down each and every idea Armstrong presented. Finally, Berger interrupted, Let's pretend we're the president's foreign policy advisors. He chided the naysayers. Let's give the president the best foreign policy advice we can come up with, and leave the politics to his political advisers. Armstrong got a green light to move ahead. In February 1997, after Clinton's re-election, the administration granted licenses for ten U.S. news organizations to establish permanent bureaus in Cuba. Fidel was wary about allowing news bureaus, but he had promised Ted Turner that Cable News Network could open one if it got a license, so CNN became the first, followed by Associated Press a year later. The administration also quietly eased restrictions on visas for Cuban artists and musicians. In 1997, 
many of Cuba's top entertainers toured the United States. The Vatican's announcement that Pope John Paul II would visit Cuba in January 1998 created another opportunity. The administration relaxed travel restrictions temporarily so that Roman Catholics could go to Cuba to see the Pope. A few weeks later, in response to the Pope's call for Cuba to open itself to the world and the world to open itself up to Cuba, Clinton used his licensing authority to restore direct charter flights and ease restrictions on remittances. We used the Pope's visit as a focal point for doing remittances and charter flights, Sandy Berger recalled. My view was that engaging with the Cuban people would do a lot more to change Cuba than isolating them. In a memo to the President recommending the new measures, Secretary Albright argued that the Pope's trip to Cuba could catalyze an unraveling of the regime, just like his 1979 trip to Poland marked the beginning of the end of communism there. U.S. officials from the President on down were at pains to avoid sounding like the new measures were any sort of concession to Cuba. Such protestations notwithstanding, Fidel Castro hoped the new measures might, in fact, signal new flexibility in Washington. Upon hearing of the Clinton initiative, Castro sought out CNN's new bureau in Havana to register his approval, calling Clinton's actions a positive thing, which would be helpful and conducive to a better climate in relations. Asked about the prospects for normalization, Castro sounded cautiously hopeful. We trust that one day those relations will be improved. As far as we are concerned, we are willing to do whatever we can. Over the next few months, the momentum for a change in Cuba policy seemed to be building. The public war of words that so often characterized bilateral relations was replaced by polite compliments. Clinton praised Cuba's universal education and health care systems and said he hoped to see relations improve. Nothing would please me more than to see some rapprochement between the people of our two countries, he told reporters in July 1998, though he was careful to preface his comments by restating the need for Cuba to take steps toward democracy. Fidel reciprocated by calling Clinton a man of peace, who was pursuing a program of social justice, and whose administration was on balance positive. Clinton's great error, Castro continued, was having caved in to the Miami Mafia by signing the Helms-Burton legislation. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce organized a new organization, Americans for Humanitarian Trade with Cuba, an unusual alliance of some 600 business organizations and 140 religious and human rights groups dedicated to repealing the embargo on food and medicine. By focusing specifically on food and medicine, this coalition was able to harness both the humanitarian impulses that arose in response to Cuba's economic hardship and the pecuniary interests of the business community, a combination that proved surprisingly powerful. In 2000, this coalition would finally succeed in repealing the embargo on the one-way sale of food to Cuba. Governments need political space, too. Despite the tight confines of Helms-Burton, Clinton officials hoped to build on the March 1998 measures with additional initiatives. The Venerable Council on Foreign Relations offered a vehicle for incubating new policy proposals, a task force on Cuba. The idea for the Cuba task force emerged from a meeting between Council President Leslie Gelb and Sandy Berger in the spring of 1998. Gelb asked Berger what issues the council could take up that might prove helpful. 
One, they decided, was Cuba. To chair the task force, Gelb picked two former assistant secretaries of state for Latin America, William D. Rogers, who led Kissinger's opening to Cuba during the Ford administration, and Bernard Aronson, a Reagan Democrat who served in the Bush administration. Like all council working groups, the task force membership was a conspicuously bipartisan mix of former government officials, business people, and academics. Because Cuba was such a volatile domestic political issue, the task force also included an observers group of Clinton administration officials and congressional staff. Any new initiatives that could pass muster with both the members and the observers, so the thinking went, could be implemented with minimal political tumult. Rather than challenge the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act and the Cuban Democracy Act head-on, the task force's strategy was to focus on provisions that call for increased contacts between Cubans and U.S. citizens and other measures designed to encourage and support the growth of private enterprise and individual freedoms in Cuba. This echoed Clinton's approach in the aftermath of Helms-Burton, and as the task force hammered out its recommendations, it became clear that they were very similar to proposals being developed inside the government. What we tried to do was find the wiggle room in the embargo, explained Fulton Armstrong, who was an observer on the task force. The council came up with so many ideas like our own. A lot of their ideas made it into our package. Because the task force's membership was so bipartisan, its report provided political cover for Clinton's plans. We needed political space. Governments need political space, too, Armstrong remarked. Armstrong worked closely with Julia Swig, who provided staff support for the task force on both the substance and timing of the task force report and the administration's new measures. Fulton and I started talking on the phone all the time. We were on each other's speed dials, Swig recalled. He was letting me know we were on the same page, that we were on the right track. I think that we reinforced their instincts and vice versa, she continued. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced since with any administration. The Cuba Task Force recommended new initiatives in five areas, baskets, intended to, one, increase contacts between Cuban Americans and their families on the island, two, increase people-to-people -people contacts, three, increase humanitarian assistance, four, open new U.S. private sector activity in Cuba, and five, foster government-to-government -government dialogue on issues of mutual national security interest. The timing of the Council's final report helped push the review of the administration's new package of measures through the bureaucracy. On January 5, 1999, just days before the Council report was released, President Clinton unveiled his new people-to-people -people initiatives, loosening license requirements for humanitarian and cultural travel, expanding direct flights from cities other than Miami, allowing remittances to anyone in Cuba, previously they were restricted to family members, offering to sell agricultural equipment to Cuba's private farmers, and proposing the restoration of direct mail service. All of the new measures had analogs in the Council report. In contrast to Castro's benign reaction to the March 1998 measures, the Cuban government was more critical of the new package. In a long, caustic diatribe, National Assembly President Ricardo Alarcón called the January measures a new stage in the war against Cuba. The regulations on remittances in particular meant that individuals or foundations in the United States 
could send money directly to Cuban dissidents. What the hell is this? stormed Alarcón. Such a regulation could have only a clearly subversive, counter-revolutionary, interventionist purpose. The U.S. government was trying to turn religious and humanitarian institutions into instruments of bribery for buying consciences here in Cuba in an effort to create traitors, people that would serve the interests of the United States against their own country of origin. Every American buy a Cuban. The National Assembly responded with new legislation, the Law for the Protection of Cuban National Independence and the Economy, Law No. 88, making it illegal to disseminate subversive material from the United States, collaborate with foreign mass media for subversive purposes, hinder international economic relations, or receive material resources from the U.S. government, directly or indirectly. That effectively meant that any Cuban involved with USAID's democracy promotion program was breaking the law. Nevertheless, the Cuban government did nothing to limit the flow of remittances or restrict the accelerating pace of cultural and educational exchanges. For the Cubans, accepting what we were doing was itself a concession, Armstrong noted. We never had a single case of them refusing people on academic or people-to-people exchanges, and some of those religious people are pretty provocative. During the last two years of the Clinton administration, more authentic people-to-people interaction took place than ever before, with steady flows of academics, artists, and sports teams moving in both directions. By the end of 2000, between 150,000 and 200,000 Americans were traveling to Cuba annually, and about a quarter of them were not Cuban-Americans. Baseball Diplomacy Of all the social and cultural initiatives authorized by President Clinton on January 5, 1999, one in particular attracted the most public interest, baseball. The Baltimore Orioles would be licensed to play exhibition games with Cuba's national team. Two weeks later, Orioles owner Peter Angelos traveled to Havana to present Cuban officials with a formal proposal to play ball in the spring, one game in Havana and one game at Camden Yards in Baltimore. The sportsmanship and universal appeal of baseball created a unique and level playing field to advance the cause of better U.S.-Cuban relations. Cubans are passionate about baseball, a sport popularized on the island by U.S. soldiers and sailors who brought bats, gloves, and balls during the occupation at the turn of the 20th century. Baseball was a common love between the two countries. It was true Americana, recalled Fulton Armstrong, the NSC official responsible for implementing this people-to-people goodwill gesture. The policy objective of the games was to make a conscious effort after the BTTR shoot-down in Helms-Burton to demonstrate that the American people did not have an aggressive intent toward Cuba, except to beat them at baseball. When the Orioles took the field in Havana on March 28, 1999, the game marked the culmination of almost 25 years of efforts to bring Cuba and the United States together on a baseball diamond. The idea for baseball diplomacy first surfaced in December 1974, when Commissioner Bowie Kuhn approached Secretary of State Henry Kissinger at a Christmas party to say that Major League Baseball was interested in playing some games in Cuba. The game would have a magic value of projecting a positive image of the United States, Kuhn told Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs William D. Rogers. Rogers and Undersecretary Lawrence Eagleburger urged Kissinger to authorize the game.
The public interest and goodwill it generated could support Kissinger's secret dialogue with Cuba that was just getting underway in early 1975. There would be an inevitable comparison with the ping-pong diplomacy that had played a role in President Richard Nixon's opening to China. The Chinese ping-pong players were accepted by the U.S. public as a good way to break the ice between countries separated by decades of hostility, Kissinger's deputies noted. Baseball with Cuba would serve a similar purpose. Kissinger was not convinced. Commissioner Kuhn's effort was turned off. Following Jimmy Carter's inauguration, Fidel Castro revived the idea. I'd personally want to see our Cuban baseball team play the New York Yankees, he told Bill Moyers during a televised interview in February 1977. I think we could beat the Yankees, Castro mused, savoring the symbolism. The Yankees promptly accepted the challenge, but other teams feared that the Bronx Bombers would take unfair advantage of the opportunity to scout Cuban talent. Commissioner Kuhn vetoed the Yankee game in favor of his original plan to send an all-star team to Havana. Negotiations between Kuhn and Cuban sports officials continued into early 1978, but fell apart because Cuba refused to allow Major League Baseball to draft Cuban players. Baseball diplomacy was an idea whose time had yet to come. More than 20 years later, bringing the Orioles to Cuba and the Cuban national team to Baltimore also proved to be a multi-year project. The games evolved out of a grant from the ARCA Foundation to journalist Scott Armstrong and filmmaker Saul Landau to find new ways of building bridges between Cuba and the United States. During the famous baseball strike of 1994-95, Armstrong approached the Players' Union with a proposal. Since the players now had time on their hands, perhaps a group of them could be organized for a game in Cuba. In California, Armstrong shared this idea with actor Mike Farrell, who then introduced him to a well-connected Jerry Maguire-type sports agent named Richard L. Schaefer. Schaefer also believed that baseball could do for Cuba what ping-pong had done for China. You need a team, and of all the team owners, Peter Angelos is the real maverick who would do this. He advised Armstrong before setting up a meeting with the billionaire owner of the Orioles. We met Angelos at his favorite Italian restaurant in Baltimore, Landau recalls. He treated us to lunch and was very positive about the idea. Landau and Armstrong then took the concept to Cuban National Assembly President Ricardo Alarcón, who was also receptive. Convincing the Clinton administration, however, would take three years and a concerted lobbying effort that included some skybox diplomacy. At one point in 1995, Schaefer and Armstrong arranged for Peter Angelos to invite Clinton's national security adviser Anthony Lake to watch a game from the owner's box at Camden Yards and to lobby Lake to support a game in Havana. I'm to the right of Attila the Hun on Cuba, Lake said, but I'm soft on baseball. The State Department played hardball, however, denying the Orioles a license to pursue the games in 1995 because the plan was deemed to be too high profile. The shoot-down of the Brothers to the Rescue planes in February 1996 and the subsequent passage of the Helms-Burton Law cast a pall over U.S.-Cuban relations for the next two years. But in 1998, Scott Armstrong revived the proposal. Lake's successor, Sandy Berger, was also a baseball fan. It was a great way of connecting with the Cuban people, he said of the games. They're crazy about baseball. 
The more we could do to show the Cuban people who we were, that we were not just the Cuban-American community, but that we were a diverse, generous people, a democratic people, the better. And what better way to do it than baseball? That was perfect. Berger asked Fulton Armstrong, no relation to Scott, for a feasibility memo on the exhibition games. Baseball diplomacy, Fulton argued, fit nicely into the panoply of initiatives the White House was developing to move U.S.-Cuba policy forward. Even then, the State Department created an obstacle course, Landau remembered. Secretary of State Albright infuriated the Cubans and almost sabotaged the negotiations by announcing publicly that the games were part of an initiative to provide the peoples of Cuba with hope in their struggle for democracy and that any proceeds from televising the games would go to the Cuban Catholic charity Caritas. The Cubans wanted the proceeds to go to the victims of Hurricane Mitch in Central America. The State Department then issued a series of impractical conditions. The Cuban government could in no way profit from any television rights to the game. The Cuban government would not be allowed to sell tickets. The Orioles would be restricted from spending money for basic services in Cuba, such as translators and facilitators and the Orioles' delegation would be limited so as not to leave the impression that people were going to Cuba on a vacation junket. For political reasons, the State Department did not want to use the word agreement to characterize the final terms under which the games would take place. There were retrograde forces, entrenched bureaucrats, who were trying to find a way to make it impossible to pull this off, Schaefer recalls. Indeed, during one protracted evening negotiating session between State Department officials and American League lawyers that lasted into the early hours of the morning, Peter Angelos became so exasperated that he stood up, declared, Fuck em, and walked out. It took a phone call from Scott Armstrong to Sandy Berger at two o'clock in the morning to resolve the impasse. In the early morning hours of March 26, 1999, a chartered jet lifted off from Baltimore-Washington International Airport carrying the Orioles and an entourage of some 150 others, including Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig, a gaggle of journalists, and a team of kids from Elementary Baseball, an inner-city D.C. sports program. The day before the game, the Cubans fetted the Orioles with an extravagant party on the patio of the historic Hotel Nacional. Behind the scenes, however, one final problem almost kept the team from taking the field, the refusal of the Cuban Institute of Sport, Physical Education, and Recreation, INDR, to provide 400 promised tickets to the Orioles to distribute to ordinary Cuban fans. In a meeting with INDER officials, Major League Baseball's Executive Vice President for Operations, Sandy Alderson, complained that the Castro regime had given tickets only to Communist Party apparatchiks, undermining the entire people-to-people -people concept that the game was designed to promote. Saul Landau made a final plea to Alarcón, who arranged for the tickets to be provided. As members of Cuban officialdom made their way to the stadium in the early evening of March 28th, diplomat Fernando Ramirez got an urgent call on his cell phone from Michael Rannenberger, the State Department's Cuba desk officer. Two small planes had taken off from Miami, and the department was worried they might try to disrupt the game by dropping leaflets over the stadium. The Cubans were not about to let an exile stunt spoil their evening. We can't do anything about it, Ramirez told Rannenberger. We're all at the ball game.
The game's most dramatic moment came before the first pitch was thrown. The teams lined up, facing each other on both sides of the mound, holding their respective national flags. With Fidel Castro, Peter Angelos, and Bud Selig standing behind home plate, the national anthems of Cuba and the United States played over the loudspeakers. The symbolism resonated through a stadium crowd of 55,000. At that emotional moment, the utopia of fair play took over U.S.-Cuban relations, Rick Schaefer recalled. Tied at 2-2 in the ninth, the game stretched into extra innings. Baltimore squeaked out a victory 3-2 in the 11th. Five weeks later, the Cuban team traveled to Baltimore for a rematch and revenge. They clobbered the Orioles 12-6 in front of 48,000 fans at Camden Yards. Diplomatic disagreements almost prevented that game from being played as well. The State Department refused to provide the number of visas requested by the Cubans, including one for Vice President José Fernández, on the grounds that he was a Communist Party leader and therefore a threat to U.S. security. Insulted, the Cubans threatened to cancel the game. After NSC officials intervened with the State Department, Peter Tarnoff telephoned his longtime partner in back-channel dialogue, Ricardo Alarcón, and worked out a final agreement on the makeup of the Cuban delegation, including the vice president. The goodwill engendered by the games proved to be temporary, but for the U.S. promoters there was a sense of satisfaction. For a brief moment, there was a normal interaction between the Cuban and American people, noted Scott Armstrong the individual most responsible for transforming the idea of baseball diplomacy into a reality. The view from the White House was similar. The games were a successful implementation of the people-to-people -people policy, Fulton Armstrong remembers. To be sure, they represented more symbolism than substance, but symbols could be important. All the Cuban kids who went to that game will never forget it. That's positive. Moreover, the United States and Cuba had often demonstrated that we knew how to provoke each other, Armstrong added. The games demonstrated that we could become more civil, even if the prospect of normalization remained remote. Counter-Narcotics Cooperation In addition to expanding people-to-people -people engagement, Clinton's foreign policy team envisioned increased cooperation with the Cuban government on several security issues, foremost among them narcotics interdiction. That was the first thing we did that went beyond people-to-people. -people. That was government-to-government, -government, Berger explained to the authors. It was a conceptual step, not just an incremental step. An incident just weeks before the 1996 presidential election signaled Cuba's willingness to cooperate. On October 1st, the U.S. Coast Guard boarded a Miami-bound freighter, the Limerick, in international waters north of Cuba. As the boarding party began to search for drugs, the ship's crew tried to scuttle the vessel. Everyone on board had to be evacuated as the limerick listed to the side and drifted into Cuban waters. Although Cuban border guards denied the Coast Guard permission for hot pursuit, they towed the ship to Santiago de Cuba and began a search of their own. Aided by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, and Coast Guard, Cuban authorities eventually discovered seven tons of cocaine hidden in secret compartments. U.S. officials were invited to inspect the ship and gather evidence for prosecuting the smugglers. The U.S. Department of Justice requested that four Cuban officers provide testimony at the Miami trial of the Limerick's captain and chief engineer, 
who were subsequently convicted of narcotics trafficking. This was an important case, a senior Cuban Interior Ministry official told the authors. We had the drugs, and you had the traffickers. The experience with the Limerick convinced law enforcement officials on both sides of the Florida Strait of the potential for collaboration in the war on drugs. But despite this common interest, counter-narcotics cooperation, like all issues dealing with Cuba, proved fraught with politics. Before there was cooperation between Cuba and the United States on drug trafficking, there was bitter acrimony. In the early decades of the revolution, Cuba was neither a producer nor a consumer of the marijuana and cocaine flowing northward from Latin America into the United States, so Fidel Castro was largely indifferent to the burgeoning drug industry. He shared the prevailing Latin American view that the scourge of drugs was a creation of U.S. consumers, not Latin American producers. Although traffickers who strayed into Cuban territory faced harsh penalties, the Cuban Navy felt no obligation to help Washington police the Windward Passage. Because Cuba and the United States had no diplomatic relations, let alone any law enforcement or intelligence cooperation, Cuban waters offered a sanctuary for traffickers where the U.S. Coast Guard could not pursue them. A significant number of traffickers were Cuban-Americans. When arrested, some sought leniency by claiming that Cuban government officials were among their co-conspirators. Such claims were largely uncorroborated and given little credence by U.S. authorities. In 1982, however, U.S. officials for the first time openly accused Cuba of complicity in narcotics trafficking, claiming that Cuba hired Colombian narcotics trafficker Jaime Guillolara in 1980 to smuggle weapons to the M-19 guerrilla movement in Colombia. In November, a federal grand jury in Miami indicted 14 people for trafficking, including Guillolara and four senior Cuban officials. The Cubans' role, according to the indictment, was to provide the protection and resupply of Guillolara's ships in Cuban waters. Speaking to a Cuban-American audience in Miami on May 20, 1983, Cuba's Independence Day, President Reagan said, There is strong evidence that Castro officials are involved in the drug trade, peddling drugs like criminals, profiting on the misery of the addicted. When accounts of the Giolara case first began appearing in the press in early 1982, Cuban officials insistently and repeatedly denied any complicity. Cuba also abrogated the 1978 Coast Guard Agreement signed during the Carter administration, which had provided for limited narcotics interdiction and counterterrorism cooperation. Shortly thereafter, José Luis Padrón, a confidant of Fidel Castro, who led the secret talks with Washington during the Carter years, made an appointment with John Furch, then head of the U.S. Interests Section in Havana. They met at Furch's residence over coffee and cigars. John, the Comandante has asked me to deliver a message. Padron began. When it comes to narcotics, we are revolutionaries. I want you to give a message to the President of the United States that you are barking up the wrong tree. You have my word, the Comandante's word. Unbeknownst to Padron, Furch had first-hand knowledge of the Giolara case. He had been Deputy Chief of Mission in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico when Giolara was arrested there in 1981. The U.S. and Cuban embassies in Mexico City had engaged in a behind-the-scenes diplomatic tug-of-war over Giolara, the U.S. diplomats trying to get him extradited to the United States, the Cubans trying to get him released. The Cubans won, and Giolara fled to Spain, where he disappeared. When Furch related this story to Padron, 
the Cuban admitted that Giolara was not a stranger. Well, yes, we know him, but we only deal with him when he is wearing his gun-running hat, not his narcotics hat. To signal his willingness to cooperate on drug interdiction, Fidel Castro began releasing and repatriating U.S. citizens held in Cuban prisons for narcotics trafficking. In early 1985, buoyed by the successful negotiation of an immigration accord with Washington, Castro gave a series of interviews proposing talks on a range of issues, including counter-narcotics cooperation. We said we were eager to stop airliner hijackings, and we proved it. Castro told CBS News anchorman Dan Rather, referring to the 1973 anti-hijacking treaty, We now say the same thing about drug traffic, and we'll prove that too, if we can get some truly international cooperation. The Reagan administration spurned his overture. In 1986, a Cuban-American drug trafficker, Reynaldo Ruiz, made a business proposal to Tony de la Guardia, a senior official in Cuba's Ministry of the Interior, M-I-N-I-N-T. Ruiz needed a way station for moving cocaine from Colombia to distributors in the United States and would pay to establish a transit depot in Cuba. De la Guardia headed a secret M-I-N-I-N-T unit whose mission was to evade the U.S. embargo by smuggling goods from Panama and Miami. His men had their own fast boats and could move in and out of Cuban ports without being stopped by the border guards. Ruiz and De La Guardia struck a deal. Drug shipments began transiting Cuba in April 1987. As the U.S. Coast Guard reported increased smuggling through Cuban waters and airspace, J. Taylor, the new chief of the U.S. Interests Section in Havana, wanted to share the information with Cuban officials, but Washington rejected the idea. It was assumed that Castro and his government were probably cooperating with the drug traffickers, Taylor recalled. After the DEA arrested most of Ruiz's U.S. distributors in early 1988, Taylor was authorized to present Cuban authorities with evidence the island was being used as a way station. When he met with Carlos Aldana, a top official of the Cuban Communist Party, Aldana was skeptical. He blamed Miami exiles for dragging Cuba into the story to get lighter sentences, Taylor recalled. But he promised to investigate. Taylor began supplying Aldana with specific dates and times of airdrops into Cuban coastal waters. Alerted by Taylor's information and by evidence from the trial of Ruiz's U.S. distributors, Cuban military investigators were able to trace the smuggling operation back to Tony de la Guardia. In June 1989, de la Guardia and 13 other Cuban MININT and military officers were arrested, tried, and convicted of treason for having put Cuban security at risk by engaging in narcotics trafficking. De La Guardia and three others, including famed Division General Arnaldo Ochoa, a latecomer to the conspiracy, were executed. The De La Guardia scandal was an enormous embarrassment to Fidel Castro, who had repeatedly declared that no Cuban officials were involved in the drug business and that U.S. charges to the contrary were nothing but imperialist slander. Lies from top to bottom as he told NBC News reporter Maria Shriver in 1988. The revelation of drug trafficking among senior security officials prompted Cuba to take the danger of drug corruption much more seriously. As Castro said during the De La Guardia trials, the involvement of senior officials posed a national security threat by providing an excuse for U.S. intervention. Just six months after the Cuban drug connection was revealed, 
The United States invaded Panama on the grounds that General Manuel Noriega's government was collaborating with Colombian drug cartels. By 1993, Cuba had signed counter-narcotics cooperative agreements with Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, Jamaica, and Guyana, and was receiving assistance from France, Great Britain, and the United Nations International Drug Control Program, UNDCP. Exchanges of operational information between Cuban and U.S. authorities had become more routine, with Cuban air traffic controllers alerting U.S. controllers of suspicious flights and Cuban border guards alerting the U.S. Coast Guard of suspicious ships. On one occasion in 1993, Cuba allowed the Coast Guard to enter Cuban waters in hot pursuit of traffickers, and when Cuban authorities captured them, they were turned over to the United States for prosecution. Yet still, Washington spurned Cuban offers to open a broader dialogue on counter-narcotics cooperation. The Limerick case in 1996 proved to be a catalyst. Cuba's conduct in that episode, the Washington Post reported, whetted the appetite of American drug enforcement officials for making cooperation with Havana systematic and routine, not just a matter of occasional opportunity. The U.S. Coast Guard, the DEA, the U.S. military's Southern Command, and the Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP, all argued that Washington ought to expand cooperation. From our point of view, the policy makes no sense, said a senior U.S. law enforcement official complaining about the politically motivated limits on U.S. cooperation. We can't close off the Caribbean from drug traffic without dealing with Cuba, and they have shown a willingness to cooperate with us by acting on all the information we pass on to them. It is a major hole that needs to be plugged. The White House drug czar, General Barry McCaffrey, wanted to take Cubans up on their repeated offers to cooperate. That dialogue might produce something useful, he said publicly. I do not see any serious evidence, current or in the last decade, of Cuban government overt complicity with drug crime. Fidel Castro himself reiterated Cuba's offer to cooperate to Senator Arlen Specter. Please, ask the highest authorities in your country what level of cooperation they want, whether the present level, a higher level, or the highest level possible. I simply say that we are ready for any of those degrees of cooperation. It is silly not to reach a serious agreement for fear of the shouting in Miami. In the spring of 1999, the White House finally authorized negotiations with Cuba to expand counter-narcotics cooperation. That meeting took place in Havana on June 21st. The U.S. delegation was led by the Department of State's Deputy Cuba Desk Officer Robert Witajewski and included a drug specialist from State, two Coast Guard officials, and Michael Kozak, who had become head of the U.S. Interests Section in Havana. The Cuban team included Dagoberto Rodriguez, head of the Ministry of Foreign Relations U.S. section, and a representative of the Cuban Armed Forces. The U.S. side offered four proposals. One, upgrading the fax connection between the Coast Guard and the Cuban Border Guard to an actual telephone system to facilitate the exchange of real-time tactical information. Two, coordinating radio frequencies to facilitate ship-to-ship -ship communications during interdiction operations. Three, stationing a counter-narcotics specialist at the U.S. Interests Section in Havana to coordinate with Cuban law enforcement, and four, providing technical expertise to assist in joint boardings and searches of commercial vessels on a case-by-case -case basis. Within two weeks, the Cuban government accepted all four U.S. proposals. 
The negotiations were absolutely painless, recalled Captain Randy Beardsworth, the Coast Guard representative at the meeting. We outlined the four elements. Cubans said okay. It was that simple. The Cubans proposed regular consultative meetings on counter-narcotics cooperation, analogous to the semi-annual consultations on migration, but Washington rejected the idea as too politically explosive. Despite the modest nature of the agreement, the administration went to great lengths to play down the dialogue, insisting that it was nothing but a low-level technical discussion and did not represent any change in policy. The negotiations were defined as conversations, conducted at working level, and the delegation was referred to as very low level. References to agreement, accord, collaboration, training, or equipment were carefully omitted from official statements. Nevertheless, as Castro predicted, the talks triggered shouting in Miami. Cuban-American Congressman Lincoln Diaz-Balart, Republican of Florida, accused Clinton of appeasement and collaboration. Dan Burton and Benjamin Gilman, Republican of New York, introduced the Cuba Drug Trafficking Act of 1999, requiring the president to make a determination as to whether Cuba should be classified as a major drug trafficking nation. The pressure from conservative Republicans in Congress caused the administration to blink, putting cooperation with Cuba on hold pending a full-scale intelligence community review of whether the Cuban government was complicit in drug trafficking, as the Republicans routinely charged. In November 1999, the Intelligence Review concluded that there was no evidence of involvement in drug trafficking by senior Cuban officials or of sufficient trafficking through Cuba to justify including it on the majors list. The new telephone link between the Coast Guard and Border Guard became operational in March 2000, and the Coast Guard liaison was finally posted to Havana in September. Improved communication produced immediate results, leading to joint operations that intercepted several smugglers, according to the 2000 International Narcotics Control Strategy Report, INCSR. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Counterterrorism Cooperation On April 12, 1997, a small bomb exploded in a discotheque in the Melia Cohiba Hotel, the first of what would prove to be a wave of terrorist bombings targeting Havana's historic district and tourist hotels. On July 12th, another bomb destroyed the men's room of the Hotel Capri, and a few minutes later, an explosive device detonated in the middle of the bustling lobby of the Hotel Nacional, seriously injuring five people. On August 22nd, the bombers hit the Hotel Sol Palermas at Cuba's famous Faradero Beach Resort. On September 4th, a succession of four more explosions rocked Havana. One blew out the second-floor walls of La Bodeguita de Melio, the famous restaurant frequented by Ernest Hemingway. Another wrecked the lobby of the Hotel Miramar, a third damaged the Hotel Triton. A few blocks away, at the Hotel Copacabana, the fourth bomb exploded near the bar, killing 32-year-old Italian businessman Fabio Di Selmo. It was the worst campaign of terrorist violence against Cuba since the 1970s. The carefully planned attacks were orchestrated by Luis Posada Cariles, the leading purveyor of anti-Castro terrorism. Operating out of Central America, Posada contracted Salvadorans and Guatemalans to smuggle small devices filled with C4 plastic explosive into Cuba to be planted in popular tourist destinations. To finance the bombing campaign, Posada raised money from Cuban-American benefactors in Miami and New Jersey. 
The purpose of the bombings, Posada explained in a candid interview with the New York Times, was to make a big scandal so that the tourists don't come any more. Opponents of the regime need something to start the fire, and that is my goal, he told the Times. I sleep like a baby, he added without remorse. That Italian was sitting in the wrong place at the wrong time. For the Cuban government, Luis Posada was public enemy number one. The official press often referred to him as the Osama bin Laden of Latin America. Imprisoned in Venezuela for masterminding the October 6, 1976 bombing of a Cubana Airlines flight that killed